0: Who's going to be the worst teams in Major League Baseball this year? How about the best teams? And which player could be on a path to an all-time Major League career record? I'll ask Joe Sheehan about those and a whole lot more, next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn
1: to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts
0: right now. (laughs) And here's your host, from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April the 7th. It's show number 11 of the 2023 Fantasy Baseball season. I am Patrick Davitt, your host, and we do have another great Friday full edition for you. We'll have our feature expert interview with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, discussing his 2023 team rankings, reasons to pay more attention than usual to Mookie bets, and instead of boons and Banes, his picks for this year's Major League Award winners. We'll also have our weekly fantasy news update with Ray Murphy, the co-general manager, projections expert, writer, and analyst at BaseballHQ.com, looking at more playing time for Zach McKinstry in Detroit and the fallout from Eloy Jimenez's latest injury in Chicago, the recall of top pitching prospect Grayson Rodriguez in Baltimore, injuries sidelining Lars Nootbaar in St. Louis and Austin Hedges in Pittsburgh, and the start of the season for Braxton Garrett in Miami, but the end of the season for Aaron Ashby in Milwaukee. We'll also have our first regular commentary of the 2023 fantasy baseball season in the frequent flyer baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky looks at Oakland first baseman Ryan Noda. It's another big Friday full edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? We got Joe Sheehan. We got Ray Murphy. We got to talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Friday Full Edition, it's part one of our feature expert interview with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Joe, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio.
2: Good talking to you, Patrick. How you doing?
0: I'm doing fine, thanks. It was good to see you in New York at Tout, And maybe we can touch on the Taut Wars American League draft, which you and I both participated in. I think you were about four seats around the table clockwise from where I was sitting. And it was an interesting draft. I wonder what you thought of it coming out.
2: The uh, Tal Wars is always a lot of fun, and one of the reasons I was excited to play this year was getting back in the room with everybody. We hadn't been able to do that since 2019, and I think the dynamics of an auction uh, do change when you're all in the same room, and I'm not saying it's like a poker game, but it's a little bit like a poker game, so it was it was fun to to experience the auction like that um, as opposed to doing it online. That was my favorite part, and of course, you know, seeing everybody. I don't get to go to uh, First Pitch Arizona as much as I, I used to, so now actually I'm seeing people that I really haven't seen in, in some cases in three or four years. So that was a lot of fun for me. So you know the technicality, the, 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 players were taking the strategy of using, obviously that's been, you know, we, we talk about that a lot, but for me, it was seeing the people and getting to sit around a table with them.
0: Uh, last year, of course, Doug Dennis of baseball HQ ran away with the league by employing a no starters strategy And uh, lo and behold, he tried it again this year and seems to have come up with a pretty good team. Why do you suppose it is that uh, knowing that he had such success last year that the whole rest of the table just let him basically do the same thing this year? Although... I think we bid him up pretty successfully on the kind of pitchers that last year he was getting for 2 or $3. Your Juan Duran's and guys like that went up to 10 or 11 so he didn't get off quite as cheaply, but he still got off pretty cheaply with the strategy. D- were you surprised that nobody tried to stop him from doing it or that nobody tried to do it themselves?
2: It's the kind of strategy where if one person's doing it, you can get away with it, and I have a lot of experience of this um, more in my Stratomatic tournament drafts than in uh, in roto drafts. But once two people are battling for the same type of players, the value of a strategy is diminished considerably. So if you go into the draft expecting Doug to do this, to be the second man in is probably just mutually assured destruction. So I, I understand why nobody else wants to pursue that strategy. It's also the fact that Doug is a bullpen expert. I mean, there's no other way around it. Doug knows bullpens inside and out. So he is drafting to his strengths, and I'm not sure there's anybody else who has that depth of knowledge of bullpens that can you know, maybe execute that uh, that strategy on the fly the way he can. So there are a lot of reasons why it's a dug only strategy. I want to say, didn't uh, Mike Podhorser was it, who tried it in 2021 and didn't quite get there? I might be getting the, I might be the wrong guy.
0: Mike Gianella, I think, tried it. Mike Gianella, too, yeah. thank
2: you. So, you know, it, it, other people have tried it, but I think – Going into the, this particular auction, I think we all expected Doug too. and I didn't. I know I, I go the other way. I, I like to, I like to, I don't draft saves at all for the most part. Um, so you know, I knew I wasn't going to do it. I really didn't expect anybody else to.
0: When you say you don't draft saves, is it a deliberate punting strategy? Or are you trying to find them either later in the draft with sort of set up guys, uh, next in line type guys, or are you trying to find them in the free agent pool during the year, or some combination of both?
2: The distribution of saves has become uh, a little more liberalized than it was in the 2010s. We've seen more teams go to a closer approach or a multi-closer approach where um, there are more guys getting between 10 and 20 saves than there were seven or eight years ago. Now, last year was a really good year for top-end closers. Most of them actually paid out pretty well. Uh, Diaz, Klasse, uh, Jansen, a bunch of guys. But in the years leading up to that, there'd been a lot of turmoil at the top of the closer charts. And my feeling is if I take a starter, or if I take a position player in the early rounds or with $22 or something in an auction, I'm probably going to get some measure of value back. If I take a closer any he blow for that money, for that draft value, and he blows up, it's a completely wasted pick. I believe that because teams are using the ninth inning differently, um, and because of the risk factor at the top of the, the closer pool, I'd rather just dig deeper. Um, in labor, I'll take guys in the middle of rounds. So in mixed labor, 15 team, I took uh, Scott Barlow. Uh, I took somebody else, I don't remember right now. Uh, but in AL Tout, with the desperate need to get position player playing time, I'd rather put the money there and just figure out the bullpen later in the, later in the auction or in FAB.
0: And of course, that's the sort of secret advantage that Doug had was because he spent so much on hitting, he managed to pile up a lot of plate appearances and, uh, as Jason Gray, uh, our mutual friend, uh, has shown before he got into uh, Major League Baseball, was a very, very successful fantasy player. And one of the ways that he did it was, and he made no bones about it, was pile up the at-bats or pile up the plate appearances, depending on what your league rules are. And if you if you get the most plate appearances, you're probably going to do real well in the counting stats, just by virtue of sheer volume. And I think that was... Uh, the kind of the other half of Doug's strategy that uh, everybody, we, we looked at it, but we kind of focused on the pitching because the pitching was more of a novelty, the idea that you could go through an entire draft and not draft a starter and then pick up these Lima guys. And the other thing, and, and Doug's very candid about this as well, and I wonder what your take on it is, we also, while we give him full credit for the strategy, it didn't hurt that he had a $27 Aaron Judge.
2: Yeah, I think that won a lot of people leagues last year. Uh, to some extent, we can talk about strategy all we want, but it's finding the right guys who blow up that are going to win or, or lose your league, whether it's blow up in the Edwin Diaz sense or blow up in the Aaron Judge sense. I don't judge return something like twice that last year. Um, that's a big part of it, but I, I don't. I don't take that away from Doug. I don't think, well, he had Aaron Judge. Well, he had to actually go to twenty seven dollars for Aaron Judge, as opposed to stopping at twenty five and letting somebody else have him at twenty six. I mean, that's part of winning the auction is getting the guy for the for X and he produces, you know, X plus ten dollars or X times two or whatever the number is.
0: And again, to be fair to Doug. He also spent $40 on Jose Ramirez, who was going great the first part of the year. Then he got hurt, and he played the much of the latter half of the year, I think, with some kind of hand problem. And of course, we know hand problems are really uh, deleterious to trying to ring up some home runs and the, the power numbers. So uh, all in all, it was a pretty balanced team on the offensive side. He did well. He won all, tw- all five categories in the offensive side, and he won ERA and whip, which was probably foreordained because of the Lima quality of the uh, relievers that he drafted, but uh, an interesting approach. Are you surprised that after all these years, nobody's gone back and tried uh, like a Sweeney plan, for instance, where you punt the power and uh, try to win all the other eight categories with with uh, spending on speed and uh, batting average or OBP and, and really pounding the pitching?
2: It might have been interesting to try this year with... Um, the rules bringing back some batting average, bringing back some stolen bases. I do think there was a lot, there was certainly uncertainty coming into the 2023 season because of those rules changes, which might've made it a little harder to say, well, I'm going to try this you know, strategy that used to be popular. Punting power is just so hard now. I mean, it's just, you act, it might be easy, easier, I guess, because everybody, it used to be, there used to be players in the league who would hit three to five home runs. And those guys had basically been run out of the league in, and, and you know, the, Low power, you know, Juan Pierre types. Um, and those guys just don't exist anymore. They've been blown away by the power pitching. So I think it's hard to find enough batting average to make that work.
0: I talked about this uh, with another expert here on Baseball HQ Radio once, and, and the problem, I think it was Gene McCaffrey, and he said the problem with that strategy is that uh, punting power is – is also punting all the other offensive categories because a home run is a five category or four category event. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And the best hitters tend to also be the best home run hitters. So if your, if your plan is to simply just go after stolen bases and batting average, you might actually do well in runs if you get, all sort of first, second place hitters in batting orders. But on the other hand, you might get a whole bunch of guys who can steal bases, get batting average, and don't give you any counting stats at all. Now you're punting three categories.
2: Is it possible the strategy dates to the four by four days where you weren't, where runs weren't a concern? You weren't punting runs if you did this?
0: I remember that the Sweeney plan was indeed a, in a four by four format. And I don't think it worked then either, but I, <laughs> you'd have to ask Peter Kreutzer. He's written about this quite a lot. And it, It's pretty funny to read about because the guy himself, Sweeney, whose name did not have an E before the Y, but uh, the plan seems to have acquired one, was uh, quite an iconoclast. And uh, if you look up Peter Kreutzer on the web and uh, the Sweeney plan, you might find that story because it's really funny. Uh, You mentioned the rules changes, Uh, Joe. I know it's early in the season, but have you seen anything um, we'll talk about the pitch clock in a second, but have you seen anything with the shift or the bigger bags or anything like that that has confirmed what you thought might happen or disproved what you think might happen? Or is it just simply too early to say?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of volatility in the early days. We saw, I think there was a 90% success rate in the first couple of days and that's come down to about 84% now. Certainly uh, there's a greater frequency of steal attempts and that's simply a function of pitchers aren't allowed to control the running game as much as they used to as well as the hitters, excuse me the base runners being able to see a big clock on the field that says when the pitcher has to do something. So I think there's no question that we're going to see more steal attempts. I I feel like if this if it stabilizes in the low 80s as a success rate, you're not getting ridiculous. I think once you get above 85%, you got to start thinking is this actually too easy? Is it real, is it stealing bases or is it like getting bases at a discount? You know, buy one get one free bases. Um, so I think that's the the number I want to monitor. The other thing, there was a very really interesting article at Baseball Prospectus the other day looking at the first five or six days of no-shift baseball and concluding that while it has an effect, the biggest effect isn't in having infielders on either side of second base, but taking away that infielder playing in the outfield. That seems to be the single biggest effect. A lot of hits are are being picked up now by left-handed hitters hitting those line drives to short right field. So I want to say BABIP is up maybe four points over last year, but again, it's early. But I expected at the start of the year that to put about 1,500 singles back into the game worth about 10 points of batting average over the course of the year.
0: And I remember from talking to you in years past here at Baseball HQ Radio, Joe, one of the things that you were on about very early and I think ahead of the field was the disappearance of singles from the game in favor of the three true outcomes and the sort of bad effects it was happening on the entertainment value of the game because uh, watching a guy jog around the bases, as you used to say, is not that interesting to watch. And singles really start the ball rolling, especially if you string a few together and all of a sudden you've got a merry-go-round on the bases and everybody's sitting on the edge of their seats wondering, can they score this guy from second and all of these kind of things. And uh, I think if there are a lot of singles coming back into the game, I think that's nothing but good for baseball just in general.
2: I think baseball's hoping that there is a virtuous cycle that develops with the increased number of steals and the increased number of singles. Now, baseball isn't really addressing the real problem, which is the strikeout rate, which is the pitchers being too close to the batters. We set the mound at 60 feet, 6 inches, 130 years ago. Um, It's time to move it back and make that more of a fair fight. So you are putting some singles back into play, and that will, again, help this virtuous cycle, but you're not making the sort of radical changes you need. If you actually look at the first week of the season – The three true outcomes rate, strikeouts, walks, and home runs, it's basically where it was two, three years ago. It hasn't changed all that much. Um, And I don't expect it to change. Walk rate is one of the highest in years. Strikeout rate is at an all-time high still. So you're not really changing the way guys are playing the game. You're just forcing, by hamstringing the defense, some singles and steals back into the mix.
0: And in the long run, it doesn't seem like that's – a very sustainable idea because uh, if nothing else changes and the strikeouts keep rising, then all of a sudden you have an even worse game than you had before, where at least every so often somebody was hitting a home run so you could wake up and take a sip of your $14 beer and say, oh, look, something happened before you sort of nod off. And the, uh, the distance from the mound to the plate, I think is an interesting question. The naysayers argue that it's always been 60 feet, six inches. And if you change it, now you're changing the, the relationship that the present day has with the past because you're changing what it takes to be a successful pitcher. But I I used to play fastball when I lived in Vancouver, fast pitch softball where they can win mill and it's like the world championships or Olympic style softball. And at the highest levels, it was not unusual to see a no hitter. It was actually relatively common. And strikeouts were, there was 21 outs in a game. It wasn't unusual to see 16 strikeouts in those 21 plate appearances. And it's interesting to watch fast pitch softball if you play it and understand what's going on. And you really live for that opportunity when somebody gets on base and everything changes. But at the same time, 16 strikeouts in a 21 batter game, it ain't that interesting.
2: Right. And we haven't gotten to that point yet in baseball, but I mean, a 25% strikeout rate is certainly realistic over the next couple of years. And remember, that number got ratcheted down when we went to the DH, uh, the universal DH. We took pitchers who were striking out 44% of the time out of the mix. So that certainly helped the overall strikeout rate. But by and large, I mean, until we actually give batters a fair shake and talk about, you know, we put this disconnect from the history and I get all that. I mean, a lot of changes throughout baseball have, caused a break with history but there's no getting around the fact that when we that in the early days of baseball we moved the mound from 45 feet to 50 to 60 in about a 20 year span Um, and then we magically decided that that was the right spot well pitchers are much taller they get greater extension and they throw a lot harder just in the time that we've been measuring with the current tools go back to 2002 the average fastball has gone from 89 to 93 so project that back and figure out what the average fastball was in 1893. So if you were inventing baseball today, you would put the mound at 62 or 63 feet to give the hitters a fat chance. So I think baseball is eventually going to get here because the development of pitching isn't changing because the way pitchers are able to add velocity and spin and extension isn't changing. You're just eventually going to have to do it. But baseball seems to be trying everything else before moving the mound backwards.
0: Pitcher usage has also changed, which has increased the number of strikeouts uh, with specialty relievers just getting in there. They tried to address that by making a reliever come in and pitch to the end of an inning or get those three plate appearances before they can leave the game. But I think those are sort of Band-Aids that are being applied to the toenails kind of thing. And the the problem is that there's a a heart problem that needs to be addressed. Could they do something with the ball to make it – Less to provide less movement on those pitches because uh, I think one of the facts that has increased the strikeouts is the pitchers are getting much better, as you said, in increasing spin rates. And I, and I think also in controlling the kind of spin that they're getting and applying it to the pitches so that we see some of those uh, sort of, uh, what do you call them, on YouTube or uh, places like that where somebody will do an overlay of the, of the pitch seeming to come from the same spot, three different pitches and, and there's three feet of horizontal and vertical movement separating one pitch from the other. I mean, how can anybody hit that? You know, I mean, obviously some guys can, but they're relatively few and far between. And I I think the movement of the pitches, might even be a bigger factor than the speed of the pitches. And could the major leagues address that issue by lowering the seams or doing something with the surface or something like that so that the pitches can't move as much?
2: Yeah, I remember the 2019 postseason. Pitchers were complaining that the the balls were like cue balls. They couldn't. There were barely any seams on them. But you know, Will Carroll, I think, just said this the other day on Twitter that that's a solution he likes. He would like to see lowering the seams to uh, to hinder pitchers breaking balls. I think that's a certainly a, a an approach I would like to see. Anything that that makes things harder for the pitcher right now, I think, is something baseball has to look at. Uh, people want to lower the mound. That's there's probably not much baseball can do about that. If you go back to 1969 when they lowered the mound from a rule book, 15 inches to a rule book, 10 inches. Um, That actually didn't have as much effect as people think it did. It was an expansion year. If you look at the numbers by 1972, a lot of the, the, the changes had, a lot of the offensive gains had been washed out and baseball doesn't have the luxury of lowering the mound five inches the way it did back then. So I don't think lowering the mound is much of a solution. I think messing with the baseball, changing it, messing with the baseball in a way that makes it harder for pitchers without making it harder for hitters. Anything that makes things harder for hitters right now, is just gonna you're, you're just going to end up in the same place. But um, I think the baseball certainly a solution. Bill James has suggested modifying the bats, although, again, to me, anything that makes it harder for the hitters isn't really fair at this point. So I do like the idea. I would like to see – Patrick, I've suggested this any number of times. I would like to see baseball set up a beta league where it hires a bunch of guys who have washed out of the game, talented – but just not good enough to play at the professional levels or buy an independent league and test out a lot of this stuff. What if we put the bases at 88 feet? What if we use this particular type of baseball? What if we move the mound back to 63 feet? Let's create a league, a test bed that shows us what the effects of these changes are. I think baseball certainly has the money and there are a zillion good but not great baseball players out there who could pay $15,000 for for three months to play in these types of leagues. I would love to see that.
0: I would too, mostly because it would just be interesting. Uh, Getting back to the idea of the seams, if you lowered the seams, one of the arguments is you're going to reduce the number of home runs because it reduces the effect of backspin on the ball and the carry that the ball gets. But I wonder in the long run, if reducing the home runs by doctoring the ball or by altering the ball is fair to say, might actually pay a benefit because more pitcher, more hitters, pardon me, more hitters who are relying on the baseball to give themselves a few extra home runs than they would get otherwise might start encouraging those guys to start going the other way, trying to hit the ball up the middle and basically get singles instead of trying all the time for home runs. And part of that would be cutting down on their swings, which would mean fewer strikeouts. I wonder if there's a a, a hidden path to entertainment value with the seams based on the fact that hitters would have to change their approaches?
2: I don't know. We're, we're a little bit outside of my depth here as far as the science. I If you lower the seams, don't you also lower <clears throat> drag, and that also helps the ball actually carry for, uh, farther?
0: That, I don't know for sure. Think,
2: this is where I think the 2017 and 2019 balls, they had, a, they had low drag. Um, and particularly, I'm remembering those complaints from those postseasons, uh, Justin Verlander saying it was like throwing a cue ball. Um, so I think that that's, I think if you lower the seams, the ball does fly better. I get your point about backspin, but the lower drag from the raised seams, I think has a greater effect. So, and again, I'm let's find out, let's put a bunch of baseballs in play and see what the, what happens and how the pitchers use them. and what, but you know, one of the issues is that you also have entrenched interest here, in, right? I mean, they tried to experiment with a, uh, moving the mound back in the Atlantic league, the independent league a couple of years ago, and pitchers lost their minds. And I get it. Um, you, you, if you're in the Atlantic League, you're a professional pitcher, you're trying to advance your career, I get all that. But at some point, we need guinea pigs. And if you're in the Atlantic League, which is the you know, 11th level of baseball, probably behind like the SEC and the Pac-12, at some point, you know, you're, you're not uh, – your best contribution to the baseball ecosystem is getting paid to be a guinea pig in experiment. So they abandon the experiment. And, of course, then the pandemic happened, so you know, no, I don't know if there's any plans to do any of this. But we're eventually – I don't see a path out of this. I mean, I can see some temporary patches. Like if you said teams can only have 11, player, 11 pitchers on their roster or teams can only have seven pitchers eligible for any given game. I think those would be ways to force teams to stop developing pitchers who can go 15 pitches at max effort. Um, I think these are ways to – to get at that problem, but the core problem right now is the pitchers are too close to the batters.
0: You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Davitt here with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, uh, you've written in your newsletter about the pitch clock. I've seen you on Twitter talking about it. Uh, what do you think of the pitch clock so far?
2: I'm withholding. I think I'm, I'm coming off as against the pitch clock, and I'm, I'm not. I'm withholding. Judgment, because I think the – while the short-term effects of the pitch clock are the games are shorter, well, that was always going to happen, I don't think we know what the long-term effects are yet. We don't know how the players are going to respond physically to playing the game faster as time goes on. I'm particularly concerned with you know pitchers who have been trained under a different model now having to go out there and pitch you know 30-pitch innings and pit relievers pitching three times in four days. Um, with this additional time pressure on, you know, the, the, the one thing we know is that when pitchers are tired, they get hurt. So will the lack of intra-pitch recovery time start to pile up? We're not going to know that for months. We may not know it for, you know, the, even this season. I think if the pitchers can stay healthy, you can keep the pitch clock and it'll be, obviously, the <laughs> the entire media world is, is in favor of the pitch clock right now. And I don't wanna necessarily want to get away with that. I just want to say, I don't know. If the, if the if pitchers can't stay healthy in a pitch clock world, that's going to be the thing that, that takes it down. And you know, there are other concerns. Um, you think about some of the great moments in baseball history. Um, I'm not talking about, you know, 1926 Babe Ruth getting thrown out at second base. I'm talking about, you know, recent years where we're kind of used to letting big moments breathe, kind of the dramatic moments and kind of getting into that and enjoying soaking it all in. I appreciate that there's a 15-second pitch clock now, but some moments should take longer than 15 seconds, some baseball moments. And I think we're not going to know what that feels like until we get into the last inning of a no-hitter, until we get a guy trying for his fourth home run in the game, until we get into pennant races that are tied you know, in the ninth inning. I mean, forget extra innings. Extra innings are a joke now. You know, what is it going to feel like in the playoffs when these moments we don't have that second to stop and kind of savor it all. So a lot of the negatives of the pitch clock, we're not going to know what they're like for a while, whereas immediately we can see the game times are, are shorter and everybody's happy. Well, everybody who you know doesn't get paid overtime to be at a baseball game is happy about that.
0: I think you're right about that. Uh, I, I hearken back to Otani facing down Trout in the uh, in the uh, last part of the World Baseball Classic, and that there was no pitch clock, and it really did heighten the drama with the two of them kind of, you know, looking at each other and backing out and and taking their time, and you could see that they were both like girding up for the for the next pitch, which turned into a pitch by pitch, really a battle, and uh-huh. and when we're Forcing them to pump in a pitch every 15 seconds, you do definitely lose that. I wonder if there's some way for baseball to change that by saying if, you know, the that the time allowed increases for each inning after the fifth for the starter. If the starter's still in the game in the sixth inning, then, he, you know, they go from 15-20 to 20-25. If he's in the seventh inning, you know, another five seconds and, and so on up till if he's in the ninth inning, then there's no, no limit at all. And, and I wonder if that would address the issue because most of those dramatic moments happen fairly late in games. Maybe they could have their cake and eat it too that way. Uh, Joe, in your newsletter, you said uh, controversially that Major League Baseball doesn't consist of two separate major leagues anymore. And for a while, I think you were actually calling them the American and National Conferences like the, uh, like the NFL. I still see American League and National League in the box scores, of course. And you and I recently drafted in Tout Wars American League only. So what did you mean about this? Uh, there's no such thing as two leagues anymore.
2: Yeah, I've been thinking this for 20, 25 years now. The actual league offices were eliminated in the late 1990s. Um, they had symbolic presidents for a couple of years after that. But you know, baseball has been under the aegis of MLB for quite some time now. Uh, It is more like the structure of the NFL or the NBA, where it's one league with two conferences. And this year, with with baseball going to this more balanced schedule where every team will play every other team at least once, which is what the NHL and the NBA do, it is more than ever clear that this is no longer two separate leagues with two separate administrations and all that. And if you go back through baseball history, it's just been a long road to this point that was accelerated in the 1990s under Bud Selig. Interleague play was part of it. Um, Eliminating, like I say, the separate league offices were part of it. Uh, Now, of course, you know, the the DH was probably, actually you go back in for the the umpires were brought, there used to be AL and NL umpires. And there was a difference in the, the chest protector that they used and the strike zones that they called. There used to be real differences between the leagues. And over the last... I mean, all of baseball history has slowly been eroding this, but really over the last 25 to 30 years, it's, it's accelerated. So my feeling is that we're eventually going to get here, Patrick. Um, the next expansion, probably in the 2030s, will take us to 32 teams. And then they're going to go through the radical realignment, whatever it's going to look like, whether it's 8-14 divisions or 4-18 divisions. But it's going to be done a lot more strictly along the lines of geography. And I think at that point, you will finally sever this idea that there are separate leagues, because that's what we call them, still leagues. And you'll go to, whether they call them the the Mays and Aaron conferences or the Wales and Campbell conferences, I don't know. But we're eventually going to get to where it's MLB with two conferences. And I just, you know, I, I got ahead of myself. And in fact, I wrote... As you mentioned, I did call them conferences for a couple days in the newsletter, and I got a lot of pushback because it was confusing, and I understand that. So I'm going to continue as a professional calling them leagues, but they're not leagues anymore. There's MLB, and there's two conferences.
0: Maybe the Selig and Chandler conferences?
2: If you name anything after Bud Selig, (laughs) I will come up to Canada. I will find you. And I will shove you into a Tim Hortons Timbit box.
0: <laughs> well, you, you have no worries on that score. The only thing I'm going to name after Bud Selig is nothing positive. We'll just leave it at that. Uh, so, in this two league structure, you're anticipating that the Mets and the Yankees could end up in the same division or in the same conference. That the the uh, two Florida teams could both end up in the same conference because they're geographically aligned. You're going to have both LA teams both Bay Area teams, although the A's may be in Las Vegas by then, I guess. So uh, in a certain way, it makes a lot of sense from a from a TV standpoint, especially because of the time shift when a West Coast team goes East, it's pretty tough for, for the players. And when an East Coast team goes West, it's pretty tough for the TV viewers to stay up that late. Uh, do you think that there's, it seems to me, I should say, like there is some merit in organizing on a more geographic basis, but is that... Problematic enough not to do it as far as you're concerned?
2: No, I think that that's where we're at. I mean, like I said, this is kind of what I was saying the other day. This has already happened. Like, this is a, this is this, we already have this structure. We just don't call it that. And by the time you get to the 2030s, you know, they're going to be relatively fewer baseball fans that really remember two distinct leagues. The last era for that was really the 1980s. Um, the strike was kind of a break point for that because two years after the strike we had interleague play and that kind of slowly you know we've kind of accelerated the process from there so you're just going to have fans who especially after these next few years of playing this this change schedule who just aren't going to you know think about it the way that older fans do in terms of distinct leagues and of course you know we have the experience of the NBA and the NHL to kind of show us what modern sports leagues do where everybody plays everybody else now in baseball, you won't travel to every city just because the math doesn't work. But the way it is now, in every every other year, you will. So Shohei Otani will go to every city in baseball, every ballpark in baseball in a two-year period, as will Mike Trout and Mookie Betts. Man, that's part of the reason baseball wants to do this is to make sure that every single city gets to see a star now. Of course, we don't have load management the way it is in the NBA. You know, the one time Steph Curry comes to your town and you spend two hundred fifty bucks on tickets and doesn't play that night. So, this was, should be a, a better process for MLB than it is in the NBA. But this is happening. I mean, this is this isn't something I am speculating on. I am certain that the next expansion will completely rebuild what we think of as MLB.
0: You mentioned the comparison with um, the National Hockey League and the NBA, and as a fan of all these leagues and as a relatively old fan of all these leagues, I can remember back to the days when the regular season really mattered because the um, number of playoff teams was pretty restricted. For instance, I, I'm old enough to remember when the there was two divisions in each league and only the, winner, the two winners faced off in the NL or ALCS and on they went to the World Series. And I'm not quite old enough to remember, but I remember reading about when I was a kid when there was one league with all of its teams stacked up and the two winners went straight to the World Series, which, by the way, is one of the reasons that you see so many playoff records being set by later year players. And everybody wonders, well, you know, if Joe DiMaggio was so good, why didn't he hit more World Series home runs? <laughs> well, because they didn't, or why didn't he hit more playoff home runs? Because there wasn't any playoffs. So is would Major League Baseball be, not for the first time, shooting itself in the foot if they go to a model that... Um, adds playoff slots and thereby diminishes the regular season because it seems like even now the regular season is where the teams probably generate the lion's share of their revenue at least as far as seat sales are concerned
2: yeah we're already there baseball has already chosen october over the previous six months Um, it's a playoff sport now and i know this because nobody thinks the 2021 los 2022 los angeles dodgers had the best season. We just don't respect regular season performance anymore. Baseball has said we want the guaranteed revenue of an expanded playoff system. And that will probably expand to 14 in later this decade and then 16 once we go to 32 teams. It's going to look like the NHL or the NBA in terms of the playoff structure. That's because TV wants playoff games. They're more easily sellable. The the stakes are obviously a lot more clear. And baseball wants guaranteed revenue to split 30 ways. In other words, if the Marlins never make the playoffs and the Yankees do, they get an equal share of those national television deals. So that's what baseball is playing for now. They're playing for that, that that national television money. So all of the strategies that we've seen the league implement on the business side have been with that mind. Let's lock up guaranteed television revenue. That's what's driving all of these decisions. Nobody is sitting there saying, what would make for the best baseball? These decisions are entirely being de- driven by what will make TV happy. TV executives happy.
0: One issue that pops into my mind about this is that uh, for now, anyway, the players don't share in the playoff revenue. That is the the player individual players who are playing in it. There's some kind of formula that, uh, that takes the live gate and splits it. Uh, I think the players get most of it or all of it in the first four games of each series, and it goes into the pension fund, all of which is good. But at some point, aren't the players going to look at this and say, since the lion's share of the revenue seems to be coming from the playoffs, we want to rewrite the CBA so that we get a bigger share, i.e. some share of the guaranteed revenues. We want, a, we want a slice of the TV money, which they get now from the regular season TV money. And as you said, the, this is a big pot of money. And while it might be suitable for the Marlins owners and the Yankees owners to agree to, to pool the resources and split them 30 ways or 32 in the future, what happens when the players say, ahem, there's somebody in here who's not getting a share of this guaranteed playoff money, and it's us, and we, we're not going to stand for it.
2: Well, two things. One, the players do get paid in the playoffs, The the and it, it is the formula you mentioned. The first three games of a best-of-five or four games of a best-of-seven, the gate revenue from those games, which is substantial in the playoffs – goes into the player pool, and the players eventually divide it based on how far they advance. I want to say the World Series share for the Astros last year, a full share was about a half million dollars. This is a significant amount of money. So they do get paid based on that. They are cut out of the TV revenue. Now, the idea is that the teams are going to use all this money that they make to get better. And, of course, this was the fight in the last CBA negotiation. This will be the fight in the next CBA negotiation. We have a situation now where teams can make so much money just by existing. Whether between national television revenues, their own local television revenues, and the teams that collect local revenues from other teams. through the revenue sharing program, they start out with about 130, like the Pirates before they sell a ticket or a hot dog, start out with like $130 million. So this this is one of the big problems baseball faces right now is you have these teams that are just saying, you know what, we'll just take all that money, thank you do the bare minimum to put a team on the field. And it doesn't matter if we turn off the local fans, if we only draw 1 million people, we're going to make money no matter what. So this was not solved in the last CBA negotiations. Um, I believe it's going to be a point of contention when we get to the next CBA negotiations because the problems weren't solved. Um, And again, a lot of this goes back to MLB making the choice to instead of saying, we're going to make money by putting a good product on the field and getting people to come to the stadium and watch it and spend money. They made a the decision to say, well, no, we're just going to blow up our playoff. We're going to have a huge postseason, uh, let as many teams in as possible, lower the barrier for entry, and collect national television money that gets split 30 ways. It's an intentional decision by MLB and a path that they've been on dating to 1994 when they realigned and invented the the, second, the wild card and all that. This is the path we've been on since. To bring up that man again, Bud Sealing uh, took over the the uh, commissionership.
0: I'm going to push back on the what you said about the players getting paid for their performances. I I do understand, and there there there's some money that goes into the, the pension pool, and the players pick up some individual money. The World Series winner you said is five hundred thousand bucks. To win the World Series is a minimum of what, 11 games? you got to win one, three of five, and two, mm-hmm, four of sevens. Mm-hmm. So, 11 games for $500,000 doesn't sound like the per, the per game money that they're getting in the regular season. It doesn't sound even close to it. It's so a $40,000, 50000 a game.
2: Oh, it's not. It, it, it's definitely a formula that, I mean, it dates to probably the 20s when they didn't, maybe even before that, the World Series shares have always been based on this idea that. We want the players to compete and not to rig the series to get the maximum number. Of, that's that's why it's set up that way because, you know, back then there was a lot more gambling and game fixing and things like that. So it's definitely an antiquated formula. Um, but I, I mean, we had this fight in 2020, I believe, when there was not going to be any gate from the postseason. And they actually had to come up with a formula from the TV money to pay the players for the postseason. Otherwise, the players would have been playing it for free. No, I agree with you, Patrick. The, pay, the players are underpaid for the postseason but again you've got to then go back and kind of restructure all of that that's you know that that's a CBA negotiation point but yeah relative to the regular season the players are underpaid the postseason.
0: and I wonder how long they're going to put up with it is is my only um, curiosity about the whole situation everybody's making lots of money and uh, and that's fine and everybody probably should make lots of money but I think the players should make the more lots of money because that's who's People are paying money at the gate and watching on TV. That's what they're watching. Nobody's nobody's gonna pay any money to see, you know, John Henry do anything. Well, I can imagine there's some things you <laughs> pay to see John Henry do, but uh, nothing to do with baseball, that's for sure. Well, Joe, this has been interesting so far. We'll take a break here, do some news, and then we'll come back with part two.
2: Sounds good.
0: Joe Sheehan writes the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter, and he'll be back later to talk about his 2022 predictions in review, his 2023 team predictions, and his picks for Major League Baseball's top 2023 awards. Coming up next, we have our Market Watch Player News reports with Ray Murphy. But right now it's time in the show when I get to let you know about an item of the great content that lets us say BaseballHQ.com is the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In prospects coverage, analyst Chris Blessing looks at some minor league hitters who are on base machines, and our regular daily call-ups report covers new arrivals, including Grayson Rodriguez in Baltimore, Dylan Dodd in Atlanta, and right-hander Ian Hamilton of the Yankees. I went to journalism school with a guy called Ian Hamilton, but I don't think it's the same guy, although he was a hell of an athlete. And speaking of prospects coverage, Chris Blessing and Brent Hershey have their weekly podcast, The Eyes Have It Up and Running. It's online now and available for most podcatchers.
3: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our weekly news review and update. And here with the latest is Ray Murphy from BaseballHQ.com. Ray, welcome back to the show. Happy Friday, Petey. It's always a happy Friday, especially with a full weekend of baseball to come up. But uh, let's start in Detroit. Not sure how happy the baseball scene is there. It's uh, still a young season and hope springs eternal, I suppose. But uh, Tigers manager A.J. Hinch announced recently that second baseman Zach McKinstry is going to receive the majority of at-bats against right-handed pitchers at second base. Uh, Tim Cavanaugh covering this story for playing time today at BaseballHQ.com. And Brian Rudd actually covered the Tigers in his weekly AL Central coverage for playing time tomorrow. And he talked about this situation as well. Does the news elevate Zach McKinstry's profile enough to be of interest to fantasy managers?
1: Yeah, I think maybe. This one caught me a little bit by surprise, but looking at what both uh our writers there were pointing out, it started to make more sense to me. Uh, you know, McKinstry was originally tagged for a utility role, but Neo's sort of now he's jumping sort of ahead of Jonathan Scope on the depth chart, getting the strong side of the platoon at second base. Scope will still get the bad side of the platoon with uh there was a quote from AJ Hinch that he would Scope would still start against the occasional ready. So maybe this is a little bit more than half the playing time to McKinstry and Scope getting the bulk of the rest. And you it's as I said, it starts to make sense. McKinstry has shown more power against right-handed pitching in his career. He's got a 118 power index, uh, so 18%, 18% better than league average uh, for his career versus righties as opposed to 81 versus lefties. So there's certainly a platoon split in McKinstry's history. Not so much for scope. He has not shown a significant tilt either way. So I guess they're just defaulting the scope being the uh, you know the bad side option and going to try to get McKinstry's at bats as much as they can on the good side of his platoon, which is kind of how that's supposed to work. Right. So we're, uh, we're adjusting our playing time allocations accordingly.
0: And that raises the question. I'm sure he's going to be available on a lot of free agent lists this weekend because I mean, who wanted Zach McKinstry coming into a draft even like earlier this week. So do you think that given what we know about Zach McKinstry's past, which isn't really super impressive, I know he's got this potential power versus right-handers, as you mentioned, but is it enough to put a fab bid in if you're hurting at second base?
1: Yeah, I mean, maybe. It's one of those things where (coughs) I'm not sure how many people are actually hurting at second base because the way that player eligibility seems to work, it's like the second base pool seems like the easiest one to accumulate multi-position guys, whether they're second base and shortstop or second base and third or second base and outfield. It seems like everyone's got multiple second basemen on their roster so maybe it's not that much of a squeeze um and even though the having a good side of the platoon is good news it's not a great lineup in Detroit it's not a great ballpark I don't think we're expecting him at the top of the lineup although I don't think we've really seen that yet since this announcement uh we had the uh in their home opener against the Red Sox yesterday Chris Sale the lefty of course started and that was uh Ryan Kriegler of all people, you know, curtain number three, basically starting at second base Uh, back on Wednesday when McKinstry last started at second base, he was batting eighth. So if you're batting eighth in this Tigers lineup in this Tigers ballpark, I'm not sure it's quite a, you know, run to open the fab wallet kind of situation. But on the other hand, you know, you find a week where the Tigers have five righties and a lefties lefty coming up. And maybe one of those is either in a good ballpark or against a team with not great starting pitching he becomes at least a streaming option.
0: And meanwhile, Jonathan Scope for years has been one of those what are often called boring veterans that nobody seems to like at draft and they always go for a bargain and always get you, you know, $12 worth of value for a $2 bid or of $2 worth of of a straight draft slot. Is this the end uh, of Jonathan Scope as far or the beginning of the end at the very least?
1: I mean, it seems a little early to say that at age 31, but coming off uh, You know, very rough season last year and now losing his opportunity here. I I think we at least have to entertain that possibility. I I mean, to your point, and given what we were saying earlier, sort of the beauty of what scope was, you know, even as recently as 2021 was that without that platoon split and playing every day, you know, there were real counting stats there. Not only did he hit, you know, 278 with 22 home runs uh, back in 2021, but 84 RBIs, 85 runs. I mean, that was a that really filled the stat sheet in four categories, and he was, to your point, boring and you know dirt cheap as a result. Uh, But you know that whole value proposition is predicated on him getting that everyday playing time, and he's a pretty long way from that right now. So he is at least temporarily irrelevant, I think.
0: So if you had your choice between McKinstry and Scope, and that was your choice for this weekend, who would you who would you gravitate towards?
1: Uh, I think McKinstry for sure.
0: In Chicago, I'm not sure if this qualifies as news exactly, but outfielder Eloy Jimenez is on the IL with a recurrence of the hamstring problem that cost him two months in 2022. Rick Green covering the story for playing time today. Uh, What are the Sox going to do with Eloy once again on the IL?
1: Yeah, Eloy on the IL might be our new... Edward Olivares is back in Omaha for uh, <laughs> for the, for this year because uh, we may talk about this a few times. The way it's going with Eloy, um, the team in this particular case is downplaying this, calling it a low grade strain. Uh, I haven't, um, so we will have to check with Matt Cedarholm and see what the uh, the worryometer says about that. But uh, for now, I think we are expecting him to be out for at least two weeks, so that's a ten percent haircut on his playing time projection. Uh, And as far as who fills in, basically two options. Uh, They called up Jake Berger, uh, the infielder, who had a sort of power and strikeout heavy spring. And they're going to form a Gavin Sheets Berger platoon um, at DH while Eloy is out. They're both left-handed, so not really uh, an actual platoon. But they're going to share the job. And you know, I I think we're at a point where if one of them shows a little bit of a hot hand, they could run with it because – there's no good reason to platoon them just for the heck of it, but, uh, you know, they're both prone, prone to striking out, but can get a hold of one every now and then. So they'll each get a two plus week audition to try to provide that value.
0: Do fantasy managers have time to watch the auditions before we make our play on, uh, making a bid on either, of uh, burger or sheets, or is this something where you're going to have to roll the dice or just ignore the whole situation?
1: Pretty intrigued by Berger this spring. You know, he's, if you think back to him, he, uh, you know, the thumbnail history on him is a, you know, former well-regarded prospect, high draft pick, whole bunch of injuries along the way, including, I think, multiple torn Achilles, which, you know, sounds super painful. Um, but he um, has, you know, demonstrated that power that I was talking about in spring training. He's shown that in flashes at the big league level. So I I think you need to be mindful that if via either Eloy getting hurt or other injury situations carving out a regular role for Berger. I, I I think in full-time playing time, you know, you, there's some BA risk there, but I think there's, you know, 25 home run plus potential there if he found his way to sticking here. So that gets kind of interesting. Uh, Sheets, I feel like we know a little bit more what that looks like at peak, and I don't think the ceiling is quite, hot, quite as high. So I wouldn't be surprised if I have Berger in some of my bid strings this weekend in fab thinking that, you know, it might just be a two-week fill-in and see if I catch lightning in a bottle. But, you know, there's a you know small percent chance that I get something that's actually keepable for the long-term out of that.
0: Staying in Chicago, I saw more interest this season in drafts on White Sox outfielder Andrew Benintendi, who posted a $30 season in 2018, 16 homers, 21 bags, and a 290 batting average with uh, Red Sox. But he's never climbed so high since uh, $35 combined the last couple of years. A baseball HQ analyst, Brian Rudd, looked at Benintendi in facts and flukes. Uh, What did Brian find in his performance validation research on Benintendi?
1: Yeah, Brian came to the conclusion that, you know, sort of across the board, both his power and speed should rebound for Benintendi this year. Um, You know, he did hit 304 last year, but it was pretty darn empty with only... Five home runs, uh, di- you know that dip in power, you know, has to be concerning. Um, and there was, you know, he's going to need the power to establish his value this year because, you know, there was some good Babbitt fortune propping up that batting average. Uh, we, we we don't really think he's going to be a 300 hitter again. The good news is that you know one core skill that Teddy does have is a good contact rate. He struck out last year at the lowest rate of his career. Um, so a lot of balls in play, especially in this. We're calling this the post-shift era now, um, can lead to, uh, you know, can help him keep the B.A. up there, even if not at 300. So, remains to be seen about the power. Uh, Expected home runs showed that, you know, he deserved a few more of the home runs than last year, which is probably an easy thing to say when your home run total was five. You can walk around and say, like, oh, yeah, I deserved, you know, seven or eight. Should have had
0: seven (laughs) or eight, yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Great. I'm excited for you. Um, but, you know, kind of same thing on the speed front as well. You know, he's always been, uh, you know, not a burner on the bases, but a guy with average speed who could pick his spots and land in the teens and stolen bases. Uh, last year, uh, last couple of years, concerningly, um, he was only nine for 20 on stolen base attempts, which, you know, even with bigger bases is in a red-white range. But he did uh, bump that back up to... Seventy-three percent last year, um, in smaller in smaller number of attempts. So maybe he's getting a little bit better at picking spots. Uh, so point being, there's not one category we could point out here that say better things are ahead. But uh, you know, a decent possibility that you get a broad range of uh, you know fill the box score kind of contributions that can help you in you know a little bit in all categories.
0: Andrew Benintendi might be coming the new Jonathan Scope, except with a few more steals to add in, kind of a boring outfielder. Guy's been around for a long time. We know what we think we know about him. And I harken back to that 2018 season. I mean, this guy has a solid $25 season in him. And I wonder if the uh, relocation to Chicago is going to help. It can't hurt uh, after being in Kansas City. I think that there's... I wish I could go back into my drafts, I guess, and, uh, take a couple of shots at Andrew Benintendi here and there because I didn't anywhere and now I'm, sh- I'm thinking from Brian's coverage that maybe, uh, I was being a little too concerned about the recent track record on Benintendi.
1: Yeah. There's a bunch of narrative stuff there too, beyond the skills, like, you know, as you say, very good in Boston, you know, in 2018 and then things kind of went south. He had... Uh, you know, one of those years. I forget if it was twenty nineteen or twenty twenty. I think it was nineteen. He bulked up and was trying to hit for more power and really just wrecked his swing. I remember. And then, that, and then the pandemic year. I think he played three games, and got hurt, and missed the uh, missed that whole summer. And then after that, he got traded to Kansas City. And you know, that's obviously a major park downgrade from Fenway. And he had to, you know, go untangle all of those swing changes. And now you've got rust on top of it as well. Uh, but you know, he finally looked pretty good. You know, last year, especially when he got to. Uh, got to new york so there's you know if you can he may may be one of those guys who has like that just enough power and kansas city was basically too big a ballpark for him but in new york or in chicago you know that um that his skill set plays better than that so we'll uh we'll wait and see i did pick up a little bit of him in my drafts this year so
0: Another player Brian Rudd looked at in his American League Central coverage for playing time tomorrow is Kansas City infielder Matt Duffy. I actually had to pick up Matt Duffy on fab in tout because it's an AL only league and there's not a lot of uh, gold to be found in them fab bids. But he's actually off to a pretty decent start this year. He's 5 for 7 with a home run. I'm not going to ask you if he's going to hit 700 for the rest of the year, but how optimistic should I and the other few Duffy owners be?
1: Yeah, Brian's got a good eye for these things, so I end up paying attention to when he notices something like this, and I think he got interested because Hunter Dozier got off to a slow start at the plate. He went one for 14, and then I think he ended up sitting for a day or two in favor of the hot Duffy. So, you know, Duffy has shown value before, you know, in a part-time role in 2021, he had 287 with... uh, a smattering of homers and stolen bases, you know, that tailed off last year, but sometimes that happens in those small sample sizes. The other thing that is maybe interesting as we watch Duff, uh, watch Dozier continue to struggle, you know, Dozier, I think, has gotten more opportunities than I think just about anybody would suggest he deserves and has, you know, clearly demonstrated that there's not another level coming there, right? Um, but one thing I was watching for earlier. Uh, in the spring was wondering if Nate Eaton was going to be a guy who got some of these um, at bats, but he has not made his way into the infield yet. And maybe that's just because Duffy has been hot, or maybe that's because they don't want to put Duffy there. And therefore, you know, they don't want to put Eaton out on the infield. And therefore Duffy is sort of the next in line if they give up on Dozier at some point. So, yeah, I think it's interesting. I think Brian's onto something here.
0: I noticed that his bat metrics aren't that great, but he earned $14 as recently as 2018. Him and Ben Attendee, gosh, that was a precursor to the happy fun ball era in 2018. He had four homers, 12 stolen bases, and uh, 550 uh, plate appearances, something like that. So I think uh, Duffy's going to be somebody I'm going to hang on to, not that I have much choice in the matter, but it will be interesting to see what he does, and if he gets you know, $10 worth of value. I'll be happy as a clam in that league. That's for sure. In his lineups outlook feature, analyst Greg Jewett looks at specific batting orders and lineups and tries to figure out what the teams are thinking with these guys. Because if you know ahead of time, or if you get that kind of insight into what they're doing as far as where they're hitting guys and how often they're playing guys, It can be really helpful, and his most recent edition of his lineups outlook feature looked at how St. Louis and Tampa are optimizing their hitting based on matchups, and it was interesting stuff. Uh, Since we're talking about the American League, uh, Ray, what did Greg find out about Tampa by looking at their lineups over the first week or so?
1: Yeah. Tampa is always a good place to start with this analysis. Cause I feel like you need a crystal ball in the off season to figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to put all the pieces together. And then, you know, we get a week's worth of lineups and now Greg's got some, he's got the right idea that there's actually, you know, we could actually go look at the first week of lineups and start to answer some questions or validate some assumptions we were making, etc. Um, Interestingly, I don't think I was expecting this, but Yandy, he points out that Yandy Diaz has been leading off every day against both lefties and righties. After that, though, the lineup changes pretty quickly. It's been uh, Wander Franco up in the number two spot versus lefties, and then he's been down around, I think, either cleanup up or four or five versus righties. Um, Manny Margot is another guy who's been jumping around a lot, um, but he's only been playing... Uh, he's been batting sixth against lefties, but hasn't really been playing against righties, which has surprised me a little bit. So he's h- him sitting against righties has created some playing time for a couple of lefties. Both Luke Rayleigh and Josh Lowe have been getting um more at bats because of that. And maybe, you know, this could be uh you know, we'll need more than one week of data to watch this because both Rayleigh and Lowe have been hitting. So they've been I you know, it's been tough to get them out of the lineup. We'll see if Margot elbows his way back into getting some of the, some more of those at-bats. But right now, Rayleigh and Lowe are both raking, um, which freezes out Margot a little bit. Also freezes out uh, Harold Ramirez.
0: Harold Ramirez, a number, member of my Towors team, a sub-700 OPS versus right-handers the last few seasons and hasn't hit against any right-handers so far this season. So he's on the bad side of a platoon for sure. Uh, I didn't hear anything about Brandon Lau. What's Greg Jewett's position on him?
1: Yeah, it's um it's interesting. I mentioned Wander Franco's been hitting second against lefties and it's been Lau against righties. But the bad news for Lau is that um, he has only started against one lefty and that was on opening day. Uh, the other day against the other lefties Lau's been sitting all together in favor of uh usually usually Isaac Paredes at second base. So we may have to uh, pump the brakes on Lau's counting stats if that platoon holds up.
0: It's one of the things to be nervous about when you're taking Tampa players is that they do this kind of stuff a lot and they're really analytical and really disciplined about trying to figure out where to hit guys when and against what kind of pitching. And it, we all, we know about platoon situations, but I think in Tampa, a platoon situation can really turn into a platoon situation because they really believe in it. Uh, Greg noted three Tampa rookies. You mentioned Rayleigh, you mentioned Lau, and uh, who's the third?
1: Jose uh, Siri, who's... Um you know, it seems like I thought Margot would be using his glove to stay in the lineup and not be as prone to the platoons. But uh, you know, the, the Rays went out and got Siri and he's really the one who's sticking um, or, or handling second center field when Margot's not around, you know, they, they value that second set that center field defense. It used to be the combination of Margot and Kiermaier providing that. And now it's Margot and Siri. So, you know, they have a lot of options. Like we said, uh, you know, they, it's it doesn't have to just be a straight platoon of player by player, but the you know position by position. But the way the Rays do it is even in this era of shortened benches, by having a lot of versatile guys and on the roster, they can you know they can cascade three or four different moves and have you know even if you're only carrying thirteen or fourteen batters, you can have, you know, four options at a particular position, which is uh, how they are able to sort of bend and spindle the roster to, as you say, create the optimal lineup against, you know, any different kind of pitcher.
0: This is a bit off topic, Ray, but uh, do you think in single league formats where there's so m- much difficulty finding a hit or replacement in the free agent pool that maybe we need to start thinking about instead of a a uh, 15 game in the previous year, five game in the current year, down to a ten and one kind of situation, just to get more players available at more positions.
1: I feel like I'm sitting here waiting for guys to qualify at qualify positions. Like, you know, Nico Horn is playing second base every day for the Cubs, but isn't going to be eligible there until he gets to you know ten games or whatever my whatever my in season rule is. And you know, maybe we need a common sense. Like, this guy is. You know, decreed as the starter and should pick up the uh, pick up the eligibility from the start of the season. One game always scares me because then you get you know Anthony Rizzo playing second base and that kind of nonsense. But um, you know, right. ha- having some sort of common sense or approved list or additional granted positions to stop this silliness where I'm waiting for two weeks before I can use Nico Horner at the position the Cubs have used him at in 10 out of the first 11 games, you know, that kind of, I'm, I'm open to any common sense solution like that.
0: You're listening to baseball HQ radio, Patrick Davitt with Ray Murphy from baseball HQ and Ray moving over to the pitchers in the American league, Baltimore put right-hander Kyle Bradish on the 15 day aisle with a foot injury and I don't know that that's that big of news. I think there was some interest in Kyle Bradish coming into draft season. But the big news is that they recalled right-hander Grayson Rodriguez from AAA, a super prospect. And this comes after a lot of grumbling from Rodriguez's fantasy managers after he was sent down at the end of spring. I think deservedly so. Uh, Ryan Williams covered the whole story for playing time today. What do you think we need to expect from Grayson Rodriguez now that he has a place in the show?
1: Yeah, you would think to. Now that Rodriguez is up, the question becomes, is he here for good? And I kind of think the answer is probably yes. Um, we we didn't do much of a playing time adjustment here in our projections. We moved uh, half a percent, you know, 10 or 12 innings of projected innings from Bradish over to Rodriguez. But we were, of course, projecting Rodriguez to be back up in the majors at some point soon anyway. So that's really why the adjustment is small. And now we've seen, you know, we've already seen Rodriguez's debut. Uh, He hung up a PQS four outing after, uh, after a rough, probably nerves induced first inning. Um, But after giving up uh, two runs and throwing 30 pitches, which was kind of alarming, he settled down. He threw four more scoreless innings. So he got through his five, you know, gave a five and fly on his first two, first outing. Um, Brandon Hyde didn't really have anything to say about, whether Rodriguez would get another start, at least not immediately, but as long as Bradish is out, it does seem like Rodriguez is going to stick, and they'll have they'll have some decisions to make after that.
0: Might have to start calling Bradish Wally Pip. Uh, I read in Stephen Nickran's starting pitcher coverage that John Means of the Orioles might get back at midseason, coming off Tommy John surgery. What would that mean?
1: Yeah, that was uh, Nickrand's, <laughs> Was that that might have been his six starters piece back? Uh, in late march where he was uh you know breaking down all the rotations and you know called out means as a possible midseason replacement here uh you know means was pretty good in 2021 you'll remember a 362 ERA with a whip just over 1 the skills were kind of interesting um it benefited from a hit rate of 25% but we remember that it was early I think it was spring training twenty twenty two where means tore bazello or maybe it was right after opening day. I don't remember. But he was going to be the poster child beneficiary of that new fangled left field corner right. and all of the all of the home run balls that It turned out really did get stopped by that fence change. It just didn't benefit Means because he missed the whole season. So if Means does come back, you know, we were excited about him in that environment a year and a half ago. And now we know that environment was even better than we were projecting it to be initially. So, yeah, we're probably excited about Means if he comes back and is healthy, let alone if he has any of those, you know, we haven't seen this yet, but, you know, we've seen other guys come back from Tommy John with an extra two miles an hour on the fastball or something like that. If we, you know, if we see anything like that, it just gets even more interesting.
0: I saw somewhere, it might've been Baseball HQ. It might've been on another site, but uh, the analyst pointed out that had Means pitched in Camden Yards in 2022 with the skill that he showed in 2021, because he would've surrendered so many fewer home runs to left, that his ERA would've just nipped under three. And he was already like pretty widely praised and pretty widely ballyhooed for the season he was having, but if you take away a lot of those home runs, all of a sudden he starts looking like not just a, a good starter and the kind of guy you want to have, he starts looking like a, a number two, a solid number two for fantasy purposes. And now I'm wondering, in a lot of leagues he's going to be available on the free agent wire, uh, depending on your league rules, maybe you want to take a grab now and just stash him away if your league rules allow you to just stash away these guys who are hurt. Uh, I know in uh, my AL Tout league, he went in the reserve round. Somebody took him in knowing he was coming back halfway through the season. So that's something else. It could end up being a nice problem for Baltimore to have. And of course, we can't discount the possibility there might be more injuries in the rotation, which would solidify Rodriguez's place. So let's move on to the National League. And we'll start with news about St. Louis outfielder Lars Nootbaar goes on the 10 day IL with a thumb contusion uh, Zach Larson for playing time today at baseball HQ and among the potential playing time beneficiaries who sticks out like a well sore thumb
1: <laughs> <laughs> you know I think we talked about this situation a week or two ago and we were talking about the you know amazing depth of hitters and you know young hitters in particular that the Cardinals have and they're really in a situation where whoever misses playing time is in danger of you know falling right through the floor and losing their job to a bunch of these other guys who are all you know showing different you know showing promise and growth and you know in some cases swing changes that are promising and you know, th- those sorts of things so you know, really bad timing for new uh, you know, I guess he actually hurt the thumb in opening day, he tried to play for it, play through it for a few days, maybe because he saw those seven guys standing over his shoulder, but <laughs> but eventually gave up. Uh, because he, he was okay to swing the bat, but I guess he couldn't get the thumb in the glove, which you know, for an outfielder seems kind of important. So, new bars on, on the IL now. Juan Yapez is back up. He was kind of lost in the, in the roster squeeze in uh, late in spring training and sent to AAA, but now he gets uh, new bars. Roster spot, if not all, you know, but probably not all of his playing time because it's going to get spread out. Uh, Yepes, you know, comes with some power, you know, in half a season of plate appearances last year, uh, 123 P- PX is pretty good. Um, and he can play first base the corner outfields. Obviously he can DH. So he's got some paths into the lineup, but he does have a lot of competition.
0: So once Newtbar gets his thumb out of his way, Yepes could once again be the odd man out because, as you said, this lineup not only looks solid, but St. Louis always has a lot of options to throw at the various things. And, and Greg Jewett's lineups outlook, he also looked at the lineups in St. Louis, which was very timely, not just for this segment, but also for the... the amount of discussion that was going on about how St. Louis was managing things. They seem to be moving towards that Tampa Bay model of mix and match, left versus right, multi-position versatility, all of these kind of things. What did Greg uh, discover when he looked into the St. Louis lineup in depth?
1: Yeah, there really was a lot to unpack here, and it was—I looked at it a couple of times, and it was giving me a headache. So I was appreciative of Greg, you know, doing the heavy lifting for me. Uh, like I said, Yepez got Newbar's roster spot, but it seems like it was Alec Burleson who was picking up most of Newbar's outfield playing time in the first days after he after New bar went down. Uh, Brendan Donovan and Nolan Gorman are both also finding their way into the lineup in a lot of different places. Donovan in particular has taken over Tommy Edmonds' leadoff spot against uh, all of the right-handers they've faced so far. I think we talked previously about Edmonds' leadoff spot being at risk and what it meant for his uh, p- potential stolen bases and counting stats. Gorman might be the one that surprised me the most. He's batted sixth three times and fifth twice more. Um, it, he, he's showing off the benefits of a uh, off, off-season swing adjustment that seems to have unlocked his power and restored his prospect status you know he was a pretty well-hyped prospect at around this time last year but sort of really just you know was pretty disappointing in his rookie year but it seems like he might be the uh i don't know what we call the opposite of a sophomore slump is that a sophomore surge we're gonna go with sophomore surge that sounds good yeah we're i just made that up on the flight i'm gonna make we're gonna make that a thing um and then we you know and we talk about all the moving parts here we can't forget about jordan walker either who had the you know Eye popping first half of the spring, missed the second half of the spring with uh, I think it was an oblique, uh, but now made the opening day roster. And he's hitting pretty well in his first week of his career. Uh, they're, they're taking it, you know, they're trying to keep him out of the middle of the lineup. He's batting seventh, but he's producing down there, um, which leaves Edmund following all the way down to number nine a bunch of times so far, um, which I guess is probably not the worst place for his stolen base totals, but it's certainly bad news for his counting stats.
0: Yeah, he can still run down there, but definitely the runs and RBIs might be a little hard to find, although... If you're going to be the ninth hitter in anybody's lineup, St. Louis might not be a bad one to choose. The problem is, what is it? You lose 20 plate appearances for position down the order. So if your 600 plate appearances expected at the start of the year leading off, you can knock 180 plate appearances off. And there's just no way to recover from that when it comes to the RBIs and runs, even if you're in a super powerful lineup. Uh, Pittsburgh placed catcher Austin Hedges on the seven-day concussion IL and recalled catcher Tyler Heineman, Rick Green covering the story for playing time today and kind of a reverse of the Baltimore situation. The news here isn't who got called up but who didn't.
1: Yep. Tyler Heineman was the ho hum option there compared to people who were looking for most likely Andy Rodriguez or potentially Henry Davis. Those are the two you know, premium catcher prospects in the pirate system. But uh, Pittsburgh decided to go with the journeyman Heineman and try to uh, patchwork the Heinemann and delay uh, backstop combo for uh, a little while until Hedges comes back here. So we'll see whether Hedges needs more than seven days on the uh, concussion IL. We did not alter his playing time projection, pending further news there. So the watch for Rodriguez and or Davis continues.
0: I was disappointed that they didn't look at Andy Rodriguez. He's their number six prospect in our Baseball HQ preseason organization reports and the scouting team noted that Rodriguez could be a real fantasy value, not only a catcher, but uh, at second base, uh, shades of Houston back in the 1980s, uh, he has more than 1,200 Plate appearances already in the minors, 921 OPS over that time, 1,000 OPS in spring in the major league sp- spring training camp in just 18 plate appearances. And then you mentioned Davis, another guy. He's a level below. Uh, R- Rodriguez is in AAA and, and Henry Davis is in AA, but he's got a almost a 900 OPS there so far with 13 home runs in his 291 plate appearances in his career. Boy, oh boy, it seems like Pittsburgh, you'd think they'd want these guys up, so I'm I'm gonna ask Ray, do you think they're just doing playing time shenanigans with especially with Rodriguez?
1: I think probably, but you know, I was wondering they've got some other stuff going on here too. You know, there was the stuff about Brian Reynolds negotiating a contract extension right around opening day. That didn't get done. But I've been noticing how they're using uh J Wan Bay, uh kind of ping ponging between second base and the outfield every day he's playing all the time but you know they're moving him back and forth uh from the grass to the dirt and back and i i almost wonder if they're trying to trial him and see you know he's hitting too so they may be trying to figure out where his best position is and then uh, because i wonder if him playing second base would kind of cramp how they would want to use Andy rodriguez if they wanted to call rodriguez up and use him both at catcher and at second base, as you suggested, and or whether they're going to, when they were going to do that, if they're going to try carrying three catchers, right? Because, you know, if you had, you know, you, you the, the D-backs had this problem with Dalton D- Varsho in recent years. If you want him to catch sometimes, then you kind of want three guys on the roster so that you don't have to pull him in in the middle of a game if you don't want to and those sorts of things. So maybe increasing Bay's versatility, allows them to use Rodriguez that way when they call him up. And then maybe they, um, maybe they could make that work. I don't know. I'm just guessing what they might be doing. The other, the other thing that's interesting that you talk about is Davis is down in double a because Rodriguez is in triple right? a, right? But I, I would imagine they want to get Davis up to triple a too. Sure. And to, to let him continue to develop, you got to get Rodriguez out of there, which means he's got to get to Pittsburgh. So, you know, there are, you know, there, there's a whole set of dominoes here and, I would think that those moves have to happen at some point.
0: Yeah, as much as Andy Rodriguez has captured the imagination of a lot of fantasy touts, really Davis is the better catching prospect. He's the number one prospect in uh, Baseball HQ's organization reports for Pittsburgh. And I don't even know that, uh, well, I think uh, Andy Rodriguez was on the list number six, I think, and uh, but Davis is clearly the prize here. And if you could get them both on your roster, all of a sudden, you know, you look at this Pittsburgh lineup and throw in O'Neal Cruz and a couple of those other guys, they look not exactly promising. I'll, I'll grant you not exactly promising, but not exactly as terrible as they've looked the last few years. They might have the core of a pretty interesting looking team if they start getting these guys accustomed to the big leagues and ready to play at a serious level in the big leagues.
1: 100% and you know they and that's to mention nothing of Reynolds and you know Rolanzi Contreras on the mound and they've got a you know legitimate back into the bullpen in Bednar there are the pieces here of a respectable roster at least one that you know isn't losing 100 games with a bunch of 30 year olds right at least there you can you can hang some hope for the future like you say that this might be you know there are guys in this Pittsburgh lineup that might play in the next playoff game, which is probably something you couldn't say two, three years ago.
0: Of course, the speculation is that both Brian Reynolds and David Bednar will be on their way out uh, at or around the trading deadline because the Pirates might be able to pick up something that they see for a year or two down the road or prospect or two or a guy who's languishing on a bench somewhere and might have a chance to play it's going to be interesting to watch Uh, finally we'll look at the National League pitchers Ray Miami put right-hander Johnny Cueto on the IL got a right bicep strain and the Marlins recalled pitcher Braxton Garrett Uh, Phil Hertz covering this story for playing time today Garrett was a highly rated prospect before he got called up in 2022 how excited should we be if we see uh, Garrett on our free agent list this weekend
1: I think he's worth a look in a lot of formats. Uh, first of all, you know the opportunity is pretty significant. You know, the Cueto injury seems to be uh, one that's going to linger for a while. We cut his projected innings by about a third. So that's, you know, a couple of months of opportunity for Garrett. Um, Garrett, uh, you know, started the season in their bullpen and got sent out for, I think it was only one day before they called him back up to take over the Cueto, the Queto rotation spot. Um, And what made him interesting to us, you know, Steven Nickrand uh, flagged him in his six starters column earlier in, uh, you know, very late in the preseason. What made him interesting was, you know, really good second half last year, a 319 expected ERA and a base performance value of 134 in, you know, 60 inning samples. So not, you know, not not a full starter workload, but not a trivial sample either. Uh, So, you know, if you, stashed him early in the season or at your draft or reserves based on Nick Rand's recommendation, The you're, you're about to reap the benefits and probably he's going to be somewhat more expensive given the opportunities right in front of him if you're bidding on, on him this weekend. But that doesn't mean you shouldn't participate in the bidding either because uh, there, there are some, some legitimate stuff to get excited about from a skills perspective and now the opportunity is there.
0: And last but not least, uh, Milwaukee announced that right-hander Aaron Ashby is going to have shoulder surgery on April 7th. That's today, I think, and will almost surely miss the entire season, unfortunately, for him and his fantasy managers. Alan Davison for playing time today. The Brewers seem to be positioned for a pretty good run this season, largely based on their rotation, but this is definitely a blow. What are the aspirational Brewers going to do from here?
1: Yeah, it really is a blow. We were already projecting Ashby to miss a couple of months, but now uh, it looks like he may not pitch at all this year. And so we got to look at the current fill-in right now, who is uh, journeyman lefty Wade Miley, who uh, you know, had a really good first start of the season against the Mets with uh, six scoreless innings. But he's now, um, rather than just a placeholder for Ashby, he's now, I guess, got a rotation spot for as long as he can hold one down. Um that doesn't mean we should be interested in him unless it's a super deep league. You know, a 13-year veteran uh, with a career ERA of 4.11 and a WHIP of 137, which is really kind of uh, disqualifying. And he doesn't exactly back that up with a strikeout ra- with a uh, good strikeout rate either. He's well below a strikeout per inning. Uh, he does avoid the walks, but that's a uh, that's a small point in his favor relative to all of the other warts in the skill set here. Um, 12 previous years, he's had uh, below zero fantasy value in nine of them, totaling negative uh, $35 of value earned. So that's, uh, that's not an asset to your roster. He's also not durable. So... <laughs> Yeah. he's not good but he's not out there much either is that a yeah,
0: uh, food's <laughs> terrible and the portions are yeah. so small
1: it's, that's exactly <laughs> it right uh you know total of 312 career days on the il shoulder inf- inflammation obliques groin shoulder again sprained foot elbow he's hurt it all so um you know looking beyond you know if you want to Draw the conclusion at that point by e- that by either injury or disqualification, Miley will not hold the whole hold this rotation spot down off se- all season. Then you got to look beyond on the Brewers depth chart, and the names you fall on are Adrian Hauser and Bryce Wilson. Um So in terms of reallocating Ashby's projected innings, we've given about half of them to Miley, but split the other half between Hauser and Wilson thinking we'll see the, we'll, we'll probably see both of them at some point later this season.
0: Yeah. Just remember you can't spell Miley without I L Ray. Thanks a million for helping us out. I know you'll be off seeing the world for the next couple of weeks. I guess we'll talk to you again around the end of this month.
1: Yes, I can, uh, share with you my uh, full trip report from Harry Potter land at universal studios with my 11 year old girls, or maybe that's not good content. So we'll just go back to baseball.
0: (laughs) Not, not great content for a podcast like this, but it's great fun. Uh, Lisa and I and our girls went down to there. this is before Harry Potter, but boy, oh boy, uh, Universal and Disney, as corny as it may seem, uh, it's a really good time for kids that age. I can tell you that. I can guarantee you that they're going to have fun. You're going to be tired. (laughs) Your feet are going to be sore, but the kids are going to love it. That's for sure.
1: That's what it's all about. Thanks, Ray. Thank you, PD.
0: Ray Murphy is a co general manager, projections guy, analyst, and writer at baseballhq.com. When we come back, it's part two of our feature expert interview with Joe Sheehan. But first, let me highlight another great item on the Baseball HQ site right now. In Facts and Flukes Performance Validation, analyst Brian Rudd looks at five American leaguers, including Alejandro Kirk, Andrew Benintendi, and Josh Donaldson.
3: Baseball HQ Radio. Ah!
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick David here with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Joe, welcome back to part two.
2: Good to be back, Patrick.
0: Joe, in a series of articles that you had at the newsletter just before opening day, you talked about your predictions for 2023, but you started by somewhat comically discussing your record in the 2022 predictions which weren't going to get you named uh, the new Nostradamus or anything, but in the carnage, you found some details I thought were really interesting. Starting with the note that while there were some misses, they were mostly at the extremes. What did you mean
2: by that? Uh, I was off <clears throat> the Nationals, Royals, Tigers, and Reds, who were you know, four of the worst teams in baseball. I missed them by 13 to 19 games apiece, which is a huge number uh, relative to you know the usual misses at the edges. I also missed the Dodgers, Astros, and Braves. I was on the low side by 10 games each, um, at least 10 games each. And I, this is something that I address when I do the predictions each year. I'm, you know, If you look at Pakoda, well, Picota actually is not his problem as much, but like the Fangraphs uh, projections and a lot of the projections that are out there tend to compress everybody into a fairly – you know, a midpoint, because they're all based on the midpoints of a lot of projections. So everybody ends up between you know, 75 and 94 wins. And one of the things I try to do, I, I have a very manual process when I do this. I'm looking, I'm trying to mirror the actual distribution of wins each year. And typically in recent years, we've had multiple hundred win teams, hundred loss teams. Um, and I just, I missed last year. Um, I don't know that, I think the biggest problem I'm having is projecting the last two months of the season. Um, the bad teams are getting worse and the good teams are getting better. And uh, I, I just i am not capturing that in my preseason predictions. And that's it, one of the things I spent a lot of time. I'm not just trying to project who's got the best roster on opening day. I'm trying to say who's going to make the moves in season, who's got the better depth, who has the worst depth, um, and say, you know, which teams are going to get better and worse as the season goes on. And last year, I just did a really poor job of that. So yeah, just yeah. The nice thing about this, Patrick, is that I get to uh, shake up the edge a sketch as uh, Mitch, Mitch, I think Mitt Romney once said, and do it all again this year.
0: I thought it was an interesting point of view, because w- when I was growing up and being a baseball fan, there was kind of a, a, a dictum about how a baseball season was going to work out. And it went something like this. All the teams are going to win 60. All the teams are going to lose 60 and it's the 40 other games in the season that make the difference between a successful season and not. And it seems like that everybody's going to win 60 uh, might have to be recalibrated.
2: Yeah, it's everybody's going to win 50 now, and everybody's going to lose 50, and it's what you do with the 62 in the middle. So, yeah, the spreads have gotten wider. Um, Rob Maines, I'm going to say Rob Maines, over at Baseball Perspectives, has done some look using look at the stuff using you know, Gini coefficients, which is an economic thing to, that measures inequality. He's come up with the last few years being some of the most unequal in baseball history. Now, I do think that's going to change. Um, if you look at all the rules baseball has put in, slightly incentivized uh, bad teams to be bad. It's not be quite as bad. Um, there's a lot of rules dragging the top teams back towards the middle. So I think this will be a more equal season largely because of that second factor. Um, teams like the Dodgers, Astros, Braves, Rays, Yankees just don't have as much incentive to win 105, 110 games as they have in recent years. So you're going to see the top teams maybe settle in that 95 to 100 win range. So I think the the gap is narrowing a bit.
0: But boy, that sounds bad from a marketing perspective. As, you know, Major League Baseball can't exactly stand up on a pedestal and crow we've improved competition by making the good teams less competitive because they're just not interested.
2: Well, I mean, the NFL does it for, through any number of ways. The NFL yeah, system is right. basically just dragging the top teams back in, over time. Now, it doesn't work as well. The Patriots play in the Super Bowl all the time and the Chiefs play in the Super Bowl all the time. I, mean, I, I don't want to get sidetracked here, but the NFL's competitive balance is, that everybody crows about really isn't any better than any other sport. So. Um, but really, a lot of this is just about marketing. Baseball, for a long time, would literally shout from the rooftops, we have terrible competitive balance. I'm not going to say the name of the person that started that. Um, and now at least it's trying to put out a better message sometimes, but still you've got Rob Manfred out there as recently as a couple weeks ago saying, you know, we have all these economic problems. No, you don't. You have a marketing problem. Just do what the NFL does. Tell people you have good competitive balance and they'll believe you. Sorry.
0: Yeah. Well, it, it's a, a poor substitute for actually having good competitive balance. And uh, one of the things I think a lot of people, I still see these comparisons is you know, the NFL has better competitive balance because more teams, more different teams make the playoffs over time than is true in baseball. And first of all, I don't think that's actually accurate. But in the second place, the way that the NFL does it is In those marginal games that change every year, the good teams are forced to play other good teams and the bad teams get to play other bad teams in the subsequent year. And so their records are artificially deflated and inflated, respectively. I think that people who think that the NFL has figured out competitive balance need to take a closer look at the schedule rules. Uh, It seems to me, Joe, that missing at the extremes might be a natural development of the growing extremes within the game itself. The rich getting richer, as you said, and the poor getting G-Man Choi. What did the wider misses at the margins mean to you?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of it is just not correctly guessing at how bad some of these teams will be in August and September and how good some, relatively speaking, the better teams would be down the stretch. I think mean, the separation after the trade deadline is widening, um, and that's causing me to miss on some of these teams more than I used to. Now, again, you know some of the incentives the, the, the league has put in, certainly at the bottom, should Drag those teams up a little bit. But honestly, some of the bad teams in baseball in 2023 are as bad as I've seen in some time.
0: Speaking of which, you predict the worst team in baseball this year is going to be Washington. And their winning percentage, uh, you think, is going to be 333. They're going to win one third of their games and they're going to lose all the rest, which is pretty tragic, actually 54 and 108. How come the Nats will be so bad?
2: They don't have any pitchers. And I know that sounds like uh, just an analytical commentary, but no, they don't have any pictures. Um, they just yeah, and and actually, it's worse. And since, since I wrote that, well, I think at the time I wrote that, we knew that they were going to miss Cade Cavalli, their top pitching prospect for the year. Um, but you look at the staff, and it's just it's a bunch of number fours and number fives. So I know you know Mackenzie Gore, if he's healthy, is probably better than that. But Mackenzie Gore is if he's healthy is like you know me if I was skinny. We haven't seen it in a long time. Um, you know, you look at Josiah Gray, who I think is a four. Patrick Corbin's a five at this point. And they have no depth behind the guys who are already in the rotation. I mean, they sent Paulo Espino down, I guess, to start the year. I, you know, they they started Chad Cool the other day. He ended up with Cavalli's spot. I mean, it is a horrible pitching staff. And the bullpen is not any better. I mean, Kyle Finnegan is their nominal closer. and He's, you know, to me, he's a bottom 10 closer. And he gave up, what, 17 home runs to the Rays the other day? Um, I just – there's there might not be – a major league that again, Gore kind of Gore is probably a major league pitcher, just isn't healthy enough. But I just don't know how this team gets 1400 even, you know, above replacement level innings. They're going to be playing, and this is mind you, at the start of the year. <clears throat> I think Corbin's going to be has a shot to lose 25 games because they need him to start. Like, normally, guys chasing 20 losses and you take him out of the rotation. I don't even know that they're going to have that option. They don't have enough pitchers so this is going to be one of the they might not allow the most runs in baseball but it's going to be the worst run prevention team in baseball if you look at you know just for park and context and all that one of
0: the justifications the nationals have offered is that they're doing a a deep rebuild they're basically rebuilding the entire organization how would you rate the probability that the deep rebuild actually pays off of the playoff caliber team and how long will it take
2: yeah, it all comes back to that, <clears throat> excuse me, the, um, the Juan Soto trade. They didn't do great in the Scherzer and Turner deal. Of course, they let <clears throat> Anthony Rondon get away from free agency, but that one trade gave them the top two prospects in their system now, a couple of outfielders from the Padres, and James Wood and Robert Lassell. You look at <clears throat> you know Elijah Green, who was a top prospect of theirs. He's also a top 50 guy. Uh, they'll have the second pick in this year's draft. They will probably have another high pick. I know there are restrictions as to how often a team can draft high in the draft now, but I think the Nationals have a very high pick next year as well. Um, they just they have a core of talent. You know, if C.J. Abrams and Mackenzie Gore even hit moderate expectations, you've got guys who can be part of a championship core. You know, they've locked up Calvary's for another eight years. So I can look at 2025, 26, and see a Nationals team that, that actually is, has the best young talent in the division.
0: You say the Rockies are third worst in your projections, but that they have, and I'm quoting huh. here, no idea what they're doing and are probably further away from success than any team in the league. What does that mean? Why do you say it?
2: Uh, <laughs> you look at the decisions they've made at the major league level over the last you know, few years, which was a uh, Jeff Breidick before. And now I think Phil Guyvick's running the, the the show there. Um the decisions they make in terms of and uh, the free agents they choose to sign, the decisions they make in terms of th- things like you know, trading Nolan Arenado, basically <clears throat> signing Nolan Arenado and then two years later trading him for basically nothing, just to get out from under the contract. Pat throwing thirty-five million dollars into the deal with the Cardinals. Um, Uh, they don't develop talent particularly. They did. They had a five-year stretch where they they brought up Story and Arenado and all those pitchers, and they just didn't put a team around it. They make worse decisions at the major league level than anybody else does. And they have some talent coming through the system. I'm really excited about Zach Veen. I think Zach Veen could be one of the best hitters they've developed in a very long time. And when you put a real hitter in that ballpark, that's exciting. But I have no faith that this team has any idea – how to evaluate talent at the major league level. So whatever prospects they do put forth and turn into major leaguers, which we've seen them do, they're not going to be able to put a team around them.
0: And I can just hear our listeners with their headphones and they're mowing their lawns or commuting to work and they're saying, yeah, they're not that great at uh, handling their prospects either. And I think there's uh, some justification for that as well. There's a little optimism while you were rooting around in the cellar. You say that the Pittsburgh Pirates, although you project them to lose uh, about 100 games again, are building a core. And that's interesting. Who's in the core and what does it mean for us right now?
2: Well, even the team right now, you look at you know, Cabrian Hayes, who's one of the best defensive third basemen in the game, probably a league average hitter, can run a little bit. But even just being the plus defensive third baseman, he's a three-to-four win player. Next to him, <clears throat> O'Neal Cruz can be anything, right? I mean, I'm, you've probably seen the highlights. I had to imagine Patrick. And, you know, he's all tooled up, and it's a question of whether he's going to be able to leaven that with some skills. As of, Even at, if you just platoon him right now, he's probably a three-to-four win player. You know, <clears throat> there's a question as to whether he'll stay on the dirt might eventually have to go to the outfield. That hurt his value a little bit. He's an erratic shortstop. One of the things the Pirates can do this year, because they're probably not going to win anything anyway, is give him 1,400 innings at shortstop, figure out if he can get better there, and before you actually have to move him. Um, you look at what they have coming through. I mean, it, it actually, you know, Mitch Keller threw six, what was it, the six one-hit innings yesterday before giving up a run in the in the, in the seventh. Yeah. You've got in the system, you know, they, you know, they have two catching prospects. Andy Rodriguez, who might be a catcher slash utility guy. And then Henry Davis, who was the first pick in the draft a few years back out of Louisville. Um, they've got one of the top five picks in last year's draft, Tamar Johnson. We've got a starter in Quinn Priester. I mean, there are some prospects coming through as well that should get to the majors in the next two years who can be core type players. So I'm looking at the Pirates now. Yeah, if they retain Brian Reynolds, Reynolds is 27, 28. You could reasonably give him a four to five year deal. Or you can trade him and quite possibly add more top 50 type prospects. So I, I'm a big fan of, of, of Ben Charrington. I don't think he got enough credit for what he built in Boston. I think he's going to really do the right job here in Pittsburgh. I'm excited. We don't know what Bob Dunning's eventually going to do. I mean, the last time he had a playoff caliber core, he didn't spend the money to put a team around it. We could see that cycle again. But the Pirates in a relatively weak division – could be a wild-card contender as soon as 2024 and a division contender in 2025.
0: Moving on to the murky middle ranks, you peg Miami as a 500-level team. How do the Marlins get to a level that they actually haven't achieved in a full season since 2009, 500?
2: It really is me believing in the pitching development. Um, you know, Kim has had a mixed bag there, but you look at the trade for Jesus Luzardo could be a very big win for the Marlins. Um, he looks now like the pitcher he was coming through the A system. Um, a true number two behind Sandy Alcantara, who won the Young Award last year. I'm a big fan of Edward Cabrera. Uh, the command comes and goes. He still has some development to do, but the raw stuff is that of a number two. Um, they've got Braxton Garrett. Trevor Rogers. you know, I was on him in the spring. I've got him on a few best balls, but you know, we'll see if, again, the control holds up. I think the raw stuff is there. Um, and remember, this is a team that's you know lost Max Meyer along the way. Max Meyer, you know, probably won't won't pitch until next year. But you know, they have so much pitching. My basically prediction for them getting to five hundred is that they have some of the best run prevention in the game. A little, it's a little bit being down on some of the other teams in the division. I think there are more wins for the Marlins to access than there were last year. But most of it is just believing they can just be an incredible pitching team.
0: And one of the advantages, Joe, of uh having such good pitching and being able to develop such good pitching is right when it gets to the point where it starts to get expensive as they hit arbitration and free agency, as long as you've got another one in the pipeline, you can trade the guy who's at the top for more prospects and keep the cycle going, a virtuous cycle kind of thing. Arizona was an off-season favorite among touts as a potentially good team, and you agreed in your articles. Uh, how have the Diamondbacks restored the possibility of a success level they haven't seen since Paul Goldschmidt was their star?
2: That's the same thing. It's player development. They had the top prospect in baseball this winter, and Corbin Carroll, he's maybe an everyday player. They've got a lot of supporting talent. You look at Alec Thomas, you look at Jake McCarthy, Josh Rojas. They've had a lot of success uh, turning maybe less considered prospects into contributors at the major league level. I love the trade they made this offseason, trading from that outfield depth with Dalton Varshow to get Gabriel Marino. Uh, Marino's going to be a very, very good player behind the plate. Different type of catcher, maybe not as good defensively as teams like to have, but he's a legitimate 300 hitter. And then behind that group, you've got this group of pitchers coming through. We saw Dre James get the save earlier this week. Brandon Fatt is is on his way through, Ryan Nelson. They have to decide, and pretty soon, whether they're going to let their young pitchers come up this year and possibly push them into the playoff chase, or if they're just going to treat this as a, a between year. And like Kyle Davies and Madison Bumgarner uh, suck up a lot of the innings, but there's some up there. There's upside here with the Diamondbacks that has them challenging the Padres and Dodgers in the division.
0: You project Boston to be 83 and 79, largely on the strength of their offense, which might surprise some people, since so many analysts before the season started said the team might struggle to score runs. Where's this offense coming from?
2: I think I'm higher on Masataka Yoshida than many analysts are. I think the average in the OBP is going to translate. For a lot of NPB hitters, the power hasn't translated. Matsui did. um, Otani has. But for most of them, they lose power. But I think if Yoshida comes over he's still going to be able to hit 280, 290. He's still going to draw the walks and be very valuable. This is such a low OBP environment over here right now that if he comes over and <clears throat> hits 280 with 75 walks, that's going to have an incredible amount of value. And I look at the top of that order. You know, I look at Justin Turner, who can still hit. I look at Rafael Devers. Um, they're, if Yoshida hits fourth, they're a little weak in the, uh, at the top of the lineup. They're definitely weak as you get down through. You look at Enrique Hernandez. Their catchers are bad. I mean, there are reasons to dislike this team. But I think they're going to score enough runs in the middle of that lineup. Um, Maybe this is the year. I have no Alex Verdugo on any team anywhere, so there's an excellent chance this is the year that he breaks out finally. Um, And that would certainly help the offense as well.
0: In that Boston analysis, you use a Red Sox contract to define a risky long-term extension. And this is a problem for a lot of teams. Most of our listeners are going to be able to guess which Red Sox contract defines risky long-term extension? But who were you referring to?
2: Yeah, after the 2018 championship, the Dave Dombrowski David gave Chris Sale a five-year extension. And even at the time, yeah, you just won a championship and you're all excited. But you know, even at the time, Sale had never been a durable pitcher. I mean, forget what he looks like on the mound and somebody give him a sandwich. But if you looked at his splits, he always faded in August and September. And even when he got to pitch in the playoffs, he wasn't that great in October. So that wasn't the kind of guy I wanted to put five years into. Um, And that contract, of course, Dombrowski was let go like four months after sales signed the contract. And it's been this weight on the payroll for high bloom to deal with a lot of, a lot of people's frustrations with bloom are actually frustrations with what Dave Dombrowski left him. He stripped the cupboard uh, of prospects and he left these horrible contracts for, for bloom to have to deal with. So But Sale was the worst of them, and the Red Sox have gotten it, forty something innings since the start of twenty twenty, since the start of this contract. Um, And I don't think anybody expects Sale to be a Cy Young contender again. I think if you're a Sox fan, you'd be happy to get twenty twenty two starts at a a league at a league average level, and that just, I mean, that's just lighting thirty million dollars on fire.
0: And his first start of the season certainly didn't make anybody think, Chris Sale's back. Yay. You have Cleveland as a borderline playoff team, Joe, based largely on their excellent bullpen and how they handle a key player. So who's the key player in Cleveland and what does Cleveland need to do to make sure that they're optimizing their performance?
2: Yeah, they got away last year with hitting Ahmed Rosario second and Andres Jimenez seventh a lot of the time, sometimes sixth. And it was – You know, these are both the guys they got from the Mets and the Francisco Lindor deal. It turns out that's actually been a very good trade for them. But, you know, they're talking about a difference. I think last year was like a 50-point OBP difference. Projections this year have it anywhere from a 15 to a 35 points of OBP difference. Um, And hitting – I mean, lineups don't matter a lot. You you look at the the – the studies the analysis and they'll tell you the you know, the difference between the best and the worst lineup isn't really 10 runs a year, but I, I don't, I simply don't believe that. I think that there are knock-on effects that can happen. And when you're hitting a low OB, OBP player in front of your best hitters, it costs you runs. When you're hitting a high OBP player in front of your worst hitters, as the Guardians are doing now, it costs you runs. Just making that one change, moving Jimenez into the two spot and moving Rosario down would be worth a lot of runs to the Guardians because it would. It's not just it, it. There's the dynamic effect of having your best hitters hitting with runners on base, and they get on, and then the guys behind them hit with more runners on base. I'm a big believer in lineup effects, and um, I, I think that's that's a given. How the Guardians struggle to score runs with their lack of power, they really can't be leaving runs on the table by having their third best hitter hit seven.
0: I also have read those studies that say that lineup effects are overstated or perhaps not even real. And like you, I just don't understand it. How can you how can you say that having a you know a 350 OBP guy in front of your big boppers is no different than having a 290 OBP guy in front of those big boppers? And how can you say that the reverse that having the big OBP guy in front of a bunch of banjo hitters at the bottom of your lineup is equally the is just the same as having him uh, having them hitting behind a weak obP guy uh, uh, it it boggles my mind and I think you're right about all of that uh, as we get into the near elite teams you say that the Steve Cohen Mets were supposed to be following the Dodgers model but their actions haven't followed suit what did the Dodgers do that Cohen isn't doing at least for now
2: well if you look at the early days of the Dodgers they pump when, when excuse me when Guggenheim bought the Dodgers in 2012 13, they made that remember they made that big trade with the Red Sox that added a zillion dollars in payroll. They got Adrian Gonzalez and Nick Punto and somebody else I'm forgetting. Um, they basically threw a bunch of money into the major league roster because the, they didn't have the farm system that would produce cheap players yet. And what we've seen the Dodgers do over 10 years is lower their payroll from the 299 million it was at one point. While replacing, you know, the, the the roster and bringing up prospects and uh, developing Walker Bueller and Julio Arias and you know, obviously Gavin Lux didn't work out, but you know Corey Seager before that, they turned into a player development machine. Now the Mets have developed a ton of talent. I don't think the Mets get nearly enough credit for how much talent they developed over the last seven or eight years. But this year, setting the roster instead of turning over the veterans and making the team less expensive by you know, putting Francisco Alvarez and Brett Batty and Mark Vientos on the roster, they stuck with their veterans. It's just, now, since I wrote that Francisco Alvarez, is he might get called up after an injury as as we're recording this. I'm still not sure what the status is there. But by and large, the 2023 Mets have chosen to go with their veterans as opposed to their young players. Now, eventually, I think they will turn things over, but they haven't been as willing uh, to do that. They haven't been as trusting of the young players as the Dodgers have been under Roberts and Friedman and Guggenheim partners.
0: Talking of the Mets, you say that their losing closer Edwin Diaz in the World Baseball Classic isn't as big a blow to their chances as we might have believed. How can they lose a top closer, maybe the top closer in baseball, and not suffer for it?
2: It's sixty innings. And this gets back to what I said earlier about you know not drafting closers in fantasy. All of these guys have skill sets. Somebody's going to pick up the saves. You. It's not like the Mets go from 60 innings of high leverage, good high leverage relief to me pitching in the ninth inning. No. David Robertson moves up, Adam Adevino moves up, Brooks Raley moves up. And yeah, they'll replace those 60 innings with somebody who's the ninth best pitcher, ninth best reliever in the organization. But in terms of who pitches the leverage, it'll still be a good pitcher. Um, There are just very few relievers, probably none, who you can't lose for one season and feel. It's about a two win hit. And it's also something that can be replaced in season, whether it's, you know, eventually moving Kodai Senga, who I think is going to be a reliever long-term, moving him to the bullpen or trading for guys. The single easiest thing to get at the trade deadline is relief pitching. So, no, this isn't a tragedy for them. I mean, I, th- I think it's more of a soft-factor tragedy. What I mean by that is it was fun last year, right? The trumpets and the guy playing it live and the, 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 his entrance. I mean, that was a ton of fun. You're not going to get that with David Robertson. But as far as the actual impact on the Mets season, it's just not that big a deal.
0: You said uh, Seattle looked like they're starting something with last year's performance, but they don't seem ready to follow it up this year with another growth season. Where is the Mariners' shortfall?
2: I'm a little concerned about the offense. Um, It kind of breaks down going around the turn. They have a lot riding on Jared Kelnick. Uh, bouncing back, you know, kind of the return. If you remember the spring that he had, he's been one of the big stories in baseball. You know, is Cal Raleigh going to really follow up the year he hit? I think he was at the top of his range last year. I think Julio Rodriguez was at the top of his range last year. And also I think there's some real concerns with Rodriguez. He played 134 games, had some back issues last year. I'm not saying he's going to get hurt and miss half the season, but he may be somebody we have to project at the 130, 140 game level. Until he shows us that he can play 150, 160 games, so they're just little things. And I'd say I, I really enjoy watching them. Luis Castillo is my pick for AL Cy Award. I've got pieces of just about every reliever in that bullpen on one team or another, but it's a little bit not complete. It's seeing a little bit of regression there, and it's a little bit believing in the Angels.
0: You said that all the White Sox need to have a top ten finish is not for everything to go right but, and I quote here, just to not have it all go wrong. Uh, What does that mean? How does it work out?
2: They finished 500 last year. And I think if you asked 100 baseball fans, you know, just a basic yes, no question. The White Sox finished uh, at or below 500 last year. Most would say below because they had so many injuries and they were out of the race for so much of the year. They actually closed to within, I want to say a game and a half. They might've even tied the Guardians at one point in September before falling apart. Uh, And it was a year where, you know, Robert missed a whole lot of time. Jimenez missed a whole lot of time. Tim Anderson missed a whole lot of time. Their core was rarely on the field at all. Grandal had a terrible year and missed time. Moncada had a terrible year and missed time. I mean, it was you know the whole uh, terrible food and such uh, small portions problem the White Sox had. They had everything go wrong, and if they just have fewer things go wrong, and I say as I say this, we know Eloy Jimenez has already been hurt. He's on the IL. Um, they just need fewer things to go wrong. I mean, if you tell me that if last year was a nine on the injury scale, if they have a five or a six this year, they should be in the playoffs.
0: You also mentioned that uh, the team should improve with a better manager than the departed Tony LaRussa. And I suppose at his age, I should be clear that departed means left the team. (laughs) (laughs) Not, you know, joined the dearly departed. How much of a bump should we expect from the team under their new management?
2: Yeah, I don't mm, move... most managers are zeros for me. Well, most managers are minus twos for me, um, and I don't generally change my projections too much based on who the manager is. In this case, I gave the White Sox a two-win bump just for getting Rullarusa out of the dugout. If you look at the moves he made, look at the last two years. There was the incident with your mean Mercedes, where he just didn't support his player at all after the incident in Minnesota, where he hit a home run. There was some really bizarre work with, the, with intentional walks. In 2021, more than 2022, there were some really questionable bullpen decisions as well. He just was a bad manager for, for a year and five months. He left the team late last year with some health issues and decided to, to retire after the season. Um, I think he was that big a negative for the White Sox over the year and five months he was in there. So just by not being Tony La Russa, Pedro Graffal should make them two wins better.
0: Just off the top of your head, Joe, you mentioned that most most managers are like minus two on your scale. Who? What managers have you seen in the last five years you think that are actually really really good for their teams, real benefits for their teams?
2: Craig Council, I think, has done incredible work in Milwaukee. He's very good at managing bullpens. And not in the sense that we give you a good bullpen and you run it well. They've slowly bled talent from that bullpen in Milwaukee, and he keeps getting it done with like Hobie Milner and Peter Strezilecki, if I'm saying that right, and just all of these randoms. So um, I don't think he's got a ton of help from the front office the last couple of years. Obviously, they traded Hader from out from under him last year, um, and he just keeps putting out good pens. I'd also mention Tori Lavoa. Again, not a situation where they've gotten great support from the front office, but he's brought along a lot of these young players. I think that his work with the likes of McCarthy and Rojas has been a big part of this to the, the success that they've had in the last couple of years. And uh, I'm curious to see what happens now that they've given him some young pitchers. You look at what they've done with Zach Allen as well. Meryl Kelly has been as good as he's been at any point in his career last year. So um, I think Council and Lavolo are two guys in part because they they play in relatively small markets. The teams haven't been great, don't get a lot of attention. I think they're two, if not the best managers in the game, certainly the best managers that don't get a lot of attention.
0: You put the Yankees eighth on your list, and you said that the team's willingness this year to hand the shortstop job to rookie Anthony Volpe could be a difference maker. How big of a difference maker do you think Volpe could be?
2: I don't think he's ready to take the world by storm. Um, I think he's a plus defender. At short, not as good as Peraza, but a good defensive shortstop. Um, I think he's got a great sense of the strike zone. He'll have some doubles power. If you look at him, this might be a little overmatched by Major League stuff right now. Um, he's getting a lot done with, with walks. He's not really hitting the ball very hard. Uh, but what it meant for as it was as much what it represented to me. It was the Yankees saying, we're not just going to be stuck. We're not going to trap ourselves by you know, service time." or contracts by playing Volpe. It makes it harder to play Isaiah kind Falefa and Josh Donaldson and Aaron Hicks. It's harder to get those guys on the field. Um, but those guys aren't very good. The Yankees better players are Oswaldo Cabrera and Anthony Volpe and eventually Oswald Peraza. And I, what it said to me was that the Yankees are going to go with their best players and not go with, You know some costs, and I think that's a big part for this team that's right on the cut. I I think they're going to make the playoffs, but you can make an argument for a couple of teams around them. So I don't think the Yankees have wins to waste. I really think that the the decision to, to play Volpe is a sign of good things to come from this front office.
0: Long-suffering Angels fans have something to look forward to this season. If your projection of 90-plus wins turns out, how are they going to get to 90-plus wins or even all the way to your upside call, 98 wins?
2: Well, the upside would be if Trout and Otani get you know, 1,000 plate appearances between them. Otani throws 175 innings, and you're basically starting with you know 12 wins between those two guys or even more. So now you've just got to put a 500 team around them. And for the first time, they actually have that. Um, I didn't love individually, you know, s- trading for Gio Urshela and Hunter Renfro and signing Brandon Drury. I don't love any of these moves, but collectively they raise the floor for the angels. And when you start with Trout and Otani, that's all you have to do. I think the bigger reason though, is I love the rotation. Otani up front. I've been a Patrick all guy forever. Um, and it's good to see he had the, he got some shine in the, uh, the World Baseball Classic, and now he stepped up. I think he's he could be as high as a true number two this year. Jose Suarez, Reed Detmers signing Tyler Anderson. I'm just a big fan of that pitching staff. I wish they didn't have to use a six man because you have to use a six man with Otani, um, and it's hard to find a six starter. And a six starter takes you know four starts away from all the top five guys. That's not helpful. But the f- top five that they have is going to be one of the better rotations in the American League. And I think that's how they end up getting to 90 and possibly into the mid-90s, challenging the Astros for the division title.
0: Joe, is it my imagination or has the whole idea of the opener and then the bulk guy kind of receded from the spotlight?
2: Yeah, I was talking about this with a friend the other day. Uh, Sergio Romo, retired. And he was the first opener back in, I want to say, 18, when the Rays decided to use him in that manner. And it has gone away. We've seen some short start. We've seen some teams use short starts, be willing to pull guys after three or four innings. But the reliever, the Ryan Stanek, getting 25 starts and throwing an inning and leaving the game—that's gone away. There was a lot of resistance from the true starters. Um, there's this perception that it could cost those guys wins, when it's actually the other way around. It actually makes you more likely to get the win because if you throw four, if you throw four innings as a starter, you can't get the win. But if you come in in the second and pitch to the fifth, you actually can get the win if you pitch well. So there's a, a quirk in the rules there that was never quite communicated. But by and large, it was an identity thing. And I think some of it was that the Rays developed starting pitching in a way that made them less reliant on using an opener. Like they're, they have four or five starters now. When Glasnow comes back, it'll be six. So there was less need for it. I do think, though, it's a tactic that if you can get buy-in, it works It works on the front end in terms of getting a better pitcher against the top of the lineup in the first. It works in protecting your lesser starters from facing the top of the lineup too many times. There's a lot of good reasons to use the opener, uh, but the resistance within the game to it is significant.
0: Fans in Toronto have been pretty impatient for the last couple of seasons, but you say they have reason for optimism in 2023. How did the Jays improve from an already pretty solid 2022 team to winning the always tough American League East.
2: Yeah, their surgical strikes in the postseason, I was really impressed by. Uh, the Dalton Moreno trade gives them a plus defensive outfielder and a left-handed batter, which is what they really need. Uh, signing Kevin Kiermeyer, plus defensive outfielder. So you go from Guriel Springer, Teoscar Hernandez to Varsho Kiermeyer, Springer. That's that's massive upgrades at three spots. Adding Brandon Belt to the addition of the other two guys also helped balance the line. This lineup, they—I'm going to forget the stat. I, I ran it over the we, the winter, but basically, they had as many right-on-right at bats as any team in baseball history last year. And they're going to get—they're going to be able to hit with the platoon advantage more often. I have them scoring a zillion runs this year. That's—that's that's not a technical term. I literally have them scoring a zillion runs. Pack a lunch when you go to Rogers Center. It's the game's going to be pretty long. The catch and we've seen this in the first week of the season, the pitching might be a real problem. Once you get past Gausman and Manoa, the rotation, a lot of shakiness there. Once you get past Jordan Romano, eh, a lot of shakiness in the bullpen. They're going to have to win a lot of games like they did on opening day in St. Louis, uh, 10-9 with a lot of lead changes. But I think they're capable of doing that. I think they're capable of scoring 875 to 900 runs and just bludgeoning their way to 95 wins.
0: So for the Jays' rotation, it's Manoa and Gaussman and then don't bet your houseman. (laughs) I like that. (laughs) Um, Number four, Atlanta. A lot of questions, a lot of risks. Which risks in Atlanta's situation do you think are the most salient?
2: Uh, Well, the surprise move was setting down Avon Gresson and going with Orlando Arcea, who's really been a journeyman type at shortstop. I'm not sure he'll hold up over a full season, but if Grissom can't play the position um, and they don't seem to think he's a shortstop now, um, there's some, you know, where does he fit in the overall picture? I worry about the rotation. We see Max Fried already have to go on the IL. Charlie Morton is pushing 40. Spencer Strider, look, a wonderful story last year, but, you know, it was just, you know, 20 starts. It was uh, 140 innings, I want to say, counting the bullpen work. Um, you know, it, how, how are we going to do stretching him out? I was watching their game Wednesday night, and they closed with Jesse Chavez, with Russell uh, Iglesias being out. That's a shaky bullpen in front of Iglesias. So it doesn't, the Braves do not seem to have the depth that they've had in recent years. I think their frontline talent's fantastic. We know that their core is going to be together for the next three to seven years, but it's a thin roster right now.
0: You have the Padres number three overall, the Astros number two, and the Dodgers at the top. We all have a pretty good idea why that is. So let's close with your brief ode to Mookie Betts, who could achieve an all time record. What is the all-time mark, and how likely is Betts to get it?
2: Uh, The all-time mark for runs scored is held by Ricky Henderson, just shy of 2,300 runs, 2,295. And you look at Betts, he's got a shot at this if he plays for a long time. He got hurt by the pandemic. In the 2020 season, he scored 57 runs in 60 games, I think was the number. might have cost him 100 runs that season. Um, And that would certainly change things as far as his chasing that. Betts is going to continue to hit leadoff. He is the type of player who ages very well. Uh, he's a player who has speed, but isn't built on speed. The bat-to-ball skills are there. I think Betts is probably the best chance that we're going to see for a while of anybody catching the run scored record. He has a better chance, though, um, at being the next player to reach 100 WAR. Trout's going to get there. Um, Albert Pujols finished his career barely over 100. Just eight players since World War II have reached 100 WAR in their career. Betts has 56 through his age 30 season. So he really just needs, you know, we'll call it four wins a year in his thirties. And he's currently still, you know, a five to six win player. I have him as, I believe I have him as the, uh, na- nationally MVP this year. So I think he's got some upside from there because he's played at the, in the era of Mike Trout. And of course now the era of Shohei Otani, I think Betts is almost getting a little bit forgotten here, whether he's like the Tim Raines to, to Trout's Ricky Henderson. Um, but this is, one of the two or three, three or four best players of this era. And I think we probably have lost sight of that a little bit.
0: After I read that part of the article, Joe, I looked up Mookie Betts. He has 873 runs scored in 10 years, but he's averaged about 116 per season over the last few full-time years, not not counting the pandemic year. At 116 per season, he'd need 12.3 more seasons, which puts him into his age 41 season or so. And, Nowadays, at age forty-one, season seems eminently reasonable for a player who's uh, as skilled as Mookie Betts and has the kind of skills that aren't going to fade.
2: A lot of this comes down to how long a player wants to play, and we can't—you and I can't predict that. Some guys want to play forever, and you know, some guys will get to 30s. like Buster Posey, retired a couple years ago. He was still a, a an All-Star caliber player. Some guys just get to it and they don't want to do it anymore. I, I'm not sitting here to be able to predict whether Mookie Betts is going to want to retire at 37 or 40 or 43. But I think that 110 a year, which would be 1100 over the next whatever year, gets in close to 2000. Um, and now you're 38 years old and you're 300 runs away from the record. I think that would, that would be interesting. Some of this is stuff we can't predict too. Like if run scoring goes up, under the new rules, or if they do move the mound back and run scoring becomes easier, you know, maybe those 110 one seasons become a little bit easier for him to get in his thirties. So again, it's the hundred runs that he might've lost in 2020 really changes the math of it. He basically needs an extra year of playing time to get there, but I think he has a, a puncher's chance.
0: Yeah, uh, when I was looking at his record, I think he has a couple of seasons that were over 125 runs scored when he was with Boston, I believe. And certainly the Dodgers lineup is going to score runs and he's at the top of that lineup. So it figures that 110 might be a floor rather than a ceiling.
2: The biggest thing he's got to do is get back to playing 150 games a year. Um, He's missed... I want to say 20 games a year the last couple of years since the pandemic. Um, If he goes back to being a 150-game guy, that's going to be a big part of it. Um, Because you can't – records like this are just about playing time. I mean, Pete Rose had it for a long time. Ricky Anderson batted leadoff. He missed time over his career, but he also played until he was 63 or 64, whatever it was. Um, So it's in-season durability. It's line of position. It's how good you are, and it's how long you play. And that's, you know, control some of that now and he'll control all of that as he gets on later in his career.
0: And of course, we have to account for the possibility that at some point he's want to go, going to want to go and join the Pro Bowlers Association and go, <laughs> on, go on the tour. Uh, for those of you who don't know, he's an excellent bowler, has a bunch of 300 games. Uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, I like to wrap up these discussions by looking at some boons and banes. But since you've gone to all the effort at your newsletter to predict 2023's Major League Baseball award winners, let's call them all boons and skip the Baines. And let's start with your prediction for American League Most Valuable Player.
2: I don't think it's reasonable at this point to pick anybody but Shohei Otani, given what he can do. Now, he got beat out last year by Aaron Judge having an all-time great season. So it can be done. But when I'm looking at who's going to be the most valuable player in the American League, it's the guy who's going to be a five-win hitter and a five-win pitcher. Um, I didn't—I was a skeptic about Otani, Patrick. I wrote articles saying that this he can't be a two-way player. He should pick one or the other. He should be a, a right fielder. Obviously, I was wrong about that. It took a few years to get there. But Otani, the last couple of years, has done things I didn't think were possible in Major League Baseball. So as long as he's active and healthy, he's, he's my pick for AL MVP.
0: I've told the story before here on Baseball HQ Radio, but when I was auditioning to join Baseball HQ staff, they made me write a little uh, test article, if you will. And in it, I projected that, uh, that uh, Ichiro Suzuki would never hit in the big leagues. Oh. <laughs> Only a small miss on that one, but I got hired anyway, so I guess it all works out. You also said uh, in your team coverage that if Otani doesn't win the MVP, you think a, a favorite should be somebody on the Blue Jays roster, and it isn't former second place MVP candidate Vladdy Guerrero. It's somebody else.
2: Yes, the guy next to him. Um, I'm a well, two spots over, I guess. I'm a huge fan of Bobashev this year. I mean, he kind of had an off year last year, and still had you know, an excellent season. The defense isn't maybe what you want at shortstop, but he's going to hit in every way. He hits for average, he hits for power, he steals bases he doesn't walk a lot for like 40 times last year and almost 700 plate appearances, but he's also not, I mean, that's that's higher than guys like Tim Anderson are going to walk. Um, so the on-base percentage will be high enough. I'm every, I have Bichette in just about every format. I mean, I've got him on like five be- best ball teams. I've got him in tout. I've got him in labor. Um, I, again, Otani's the base case for MVP, but if he gets traded out of the league, if, you know, he's not able to pitch 150 innings, whatever it is. I think Bichette's going to be the guy right there to pick up the pieces. I, I love him this year.
0: Who's your American league Cy Young? Uh,
2: Luis Castillo, who I think has been building to this for a while. He pitched very well for the Mariners down the stretch. He should get better offensive and bullpen support than he got with the Reds all those years. Uh, I look at the maturation process. You know, he, he, he doesn't really even use the changeup as much as he used to. He's, just a different pitcher than he was coming up with to the red system. He's also one of the few guys in the game right now. I think you can reject for 200 innings. There's just not a lot of pitchers like that anymore. So I think he'll have that advantage as well. So yeah, I love Castillo. I actually think he'll start the all-star game for the American league, lead the league in strikeouts with the Cy of Award,
0: And the American league rookie of the year.
2: You know, we talked about him earlier. Uh, Maybe it's unfair to include MPP players in this conversation, but as long as we're doing it, I'm going with Masataka Yoshida of the Red Sox. I think he's going to be an everyday player for them. I think he's going to get on base a ton, score a bunch of runs. If the Red Sox are a wild card contender, as I expect them to be, he'll get a lot of attention for being a big part of that. It's a little bit at of left field. I think most people are going with Gunnar Henderson. Um, as the rookie of the year, and that's certainly a a valid pick, a viable pick. But I think Oshita is going to have better numbers at the end of the year.
0: Over to the National League. uh, Your MVP probably comes as no surprise.
2: It's Mookie Betts. Um, Again, I I, I think he's an underrated player. I think he's set to have a seven-win season leading off in that lineup. Getting back to being a 155-game guy, I know he rolled his ankle playing second base the other night. I'm not too concerned about that. Uh, I think if he plays every day, the numbers are just going to be uh, overwhelming. And you know, the AL, you know, has so many good candidates right now, right? You mean Juan Soto can be an MVP, MVP type of pick just about every year. The two guys on the Cardinals, Francisco Lindor has got to be in that mix for what he can do as a shortstop. Um, I'm going with bets in a crowded field.
0: How about a Cy Young winner for the National League?
2: Yeah, can I change this after his first two starts? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, I went with Cor- Cor- Corbin Burns, who's you know, he won a couple of years ago when he was around the Cup last year. Uh, I, just a, a phenomenal he combined stuff and command in a way that few guys in the game do. You're talking about a DeGrom-level type of pitcher. Um, and again, he's somebody who's – because the, the Brewers use a five-day – excuse me, a five, true five-man rotation, he doesn't quite get as many innings as the top guys – um, but even then the volume is going to be there as well. So yeah, with two starts in, it doesn't, and you, know, you can have two bad starts and still win the Sang award, but, uh, obviously that's, that's not up to a great start.
0: And you're a national league rookie of the year.
2: Yeah. This got some pushback. I went with Ezekiel Tovar, the shortstop for the Rockies, um, 21 years old, 22 years old, I should say. Um, I think he's going to play. That's really what it comes down to. He's going to play every day. He's going to play, you know, 78 to 81 games at Coors Field, which is certainly going to help his numbers. He's the type of hitter who is going to be helped by, you know, he hits the ball hard um, and he swings a lot. So I think he's going to have the kind of um, uh, counting stats, the kind of batting average that really helps you in, in a rookie of the year race. I'm not sure he'll be the best um, rookie. Other guys might be better, but I think he's going to have the best case. I will say this, Patrick. At the time I wrote this, um, I want to say March 23rd or 24th, I published these numbers. I didn't think Jordan Walker was going to make the Cardinals roster. And if I'd made these picks even a week later, after Walker, was, Walker made the Cardinals, I would have picked Walker. So that was a bit of a timing thing here. Um, Walker, just you know, I think he's going to be the rookie. Of the, now I think he's going to be the rookie of the year. Two weeks ago, I didn't think he was going to be on the team. So that's bad on me.
0: Well, it's not something that anybody can predict. And finally, uh, the ultimate boon, something of a surprise prediction for your World Series winner.
2: Yeah, this isn't kissing up to the Canadian host at all, I swear, but uh, I love those Blue Jays. I think you get them into a playoff scenario. And you know we've seen this in the modern postseason where offense hitting home runs really gets you there. Um, it's harder to get there from from pitching, from run prevention now. So I think when you get into the tournament, the Blue Jays lineup, one through nine, you know, power at probably eight of those spots is going to be incredibly hard to beat. I've got them beating the Braves in the World Series
0: 4-2. And before we let you go, Joe, a couple of non-baseball things. What did your, what were your reactions to the NCAA tournaments?
2: Uh, a ton of fun. I, yeah, I don't really follow the women's game all that much. The men's game it showed the randomness. It showed the way that if you just get guys and teams into a bracket, the best teams are going to lose sometimes. And it did fit this year's motif. I mean, the top teams, I think, objectively speaking, weren't as good as the top teams in other seasons have been. That's nothing against what Purdue and Houston and Alabama accomplished, but I don't think we would have put them on the same tier as some of the best teams in, oh, in 21 or 19 or 18 beyond that. So I think the tournament reflected the season we had.
0: And if you didn't watch the women's tournament, gosh, it was fun too. It was a really good tournament. Uh, I enjoyed it as much as I enjoyed the men's one. I didn't start off watching it, but you know, you start reading the coverage and stuff like that. They, they got something going on over here. And it's an interesting form of basketball because um, – it's still a lot more team oriented, like the way we learned to play in high school, look for the open person, you know, all, all of these kind of things. Uh, they have big players now that they didn't used to have, but uh, the best player for the most part is uh, like a f- f- fairly small uh, point guard playing in Iowa and uh, Caitlin Collins, I think her name was. And gosh, she was terrific and a lot of fun. And finally, finally, uh, what do you think when you're looking forward to the Masters?
2: Xander Schauffele, he's not getting any buzz coming in. A lot of the focus is on Rory McIlroy and Xander Schauffele. I've seen a lot of people talk of Justin Thomas, uh, maybe Max Homo who's playing very well but doesn't have a great Masters history. But I think Xander, you know, he was in position to, to come back and win it two years ago. He dunked a ball in the water on 16. I think he gets back to that spot and wins it this year. Give me Xander for the win.
0: Have you seen anything or read anything or have any thoughts on Tom Kim?
2: Uh. He started a year great. I mean, he had a great run at the end of last year. I want to say he was T6 in Hawaii, uh, one of the Hawaii tournaments. He really has not played well uh, since. And basically, first-timers at the Masters have a really hard time. It's so much about knowing the nuances of that course. Famously, no first-time winner has won since, I think, Fuzzy Zeller in 1979. So I would expect Tom Kim to have a learning experience this week, but not, not be on the scoreboard on that Sunday.
0: In the New York Times uh, today, or just the other day, they had a, an interview with Mark O'Meara talking about the uh, the course which he played many times, and exactly as you say, it's all about the nuances and where hole locations and and uh, you know the the subtle little uh, rises and falls in the in the fairway positions. It was a really interesting article, and it certainly goes to what you say a, a big part of doing well at the Masters is knowing the course. And of course, it's hard to know the course if you haven't played it. Uh, Joe, it's been terrific. I knew it would be a lot of fun. Uh, Remind us where listeners can keep up with Joe Sheehan.
2: Uh, JoeSheehan.com is where you can get all the information about the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. There are subscription links there. There are excerpts. There are some recent pieces. I'll generally put up one, two pieces, about, about a piece a week, a full piece, full newsletter. Um, but if you go through, you scroll through, you get a sense of what it is I do. It's analysis. It's creative writing. It's just, it's loving the game. So uh, people will check it out, joshian.com. I'm covering, this is the 14th season I've covered with the newsletter. I've actually been doing the newsletter now longer than I was with Baseball Perspectives, which is shocking to me, but uh, I'm very fortunate
0: you have an excellent Twitter feed as well. And, uh, you gotta be careful about how you write Joe Sheehan in the handle.
2: <laughs> There's a lovely, uh, lovely gentleman in St. Louis who got to Twitter before I did and is at Joe Sheehan. And, uh, it's funny. Cause he actually asked me, he wanted to buy Joe Sheehan.com for me at one point. And I, of course, you know, I, I use that as a billboard. Um, I think if I, I, he would have traded the Joe Sheehan for me, but yeah, Joe underscore Sheehan is how you get to my Twitter feed. But, uh, He's very patient. People will, you know, call him a jerk and mf him, and he's like, "Nope, you want that guy." So uh, yeah, Joe <laughs> underscore Sheehan on Twitter.
0: Yeah, can you imagine being that poor guy? <laughs> All of a sudden, you're getting bombarded with uh, people. I guess he knows by now what's going on, but yeah, uh, yeah people yeah, saying, he, he "What he do you mean, Shohei Otani?" Oh, yeah. Well,
2: I, I feel bad for the for the smart Joe Sheehan, the uh, executive with the Blue Jays. He was with the Pirates. He used to write for Hardball Times. I call him the, the smart Joe Sheehan, and he he probably gets MF too. People thinking it's me. So it, it, it's just this big chain of Joe Sheehans getting uh, misidentified.
0: Well, with Toronto sports fans, he's probably getting MF anyway, <laughs> even if they get his Twitter handle right. Joe, thanks a million. It's been great, and I'll talk to you soon.
2: Thanks, Patrick. Take care.
0: Joe Sheehan writes the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. One last reminder of a great item at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. In the GM's office, Ray Murphy, you know him, updates the latest news from the site, including an HQ analyst getting called up to the big leagues, an update to our player link player information pages, and some reminders about site tools like the starting pitcher matchups finder, the fab calculator, and our daily lineup email. I've mentioned three items on the site now at BaseballHQ.com, and they're just three items among literally dozens. A sampling of all the great content you'll find at BaseballHQ.com all the time. There's player performance validation in facts and flukes, news updates in playing time today, roster forecasting in playing time tomorrow, buyer's guides for hitters, starters, and relievers, fantasy market analysis in the market pulse, injury analysis in the big hurt column, and groundbreaking fantasy baseball research. As well, we have tools like the player projections updated every day, depth charts, daily dashboards, pitcher matchups planners, bullpen indicators, batter consistency reports, complete pitcher PQS logs, potential surgers and faders, and other leading indicators for hitters and pitchers. When you add it all up, it sounds like a lot, and it is a lot. It's expert content plus tools you can use to improve your teams and win your leagues. And they're why we call our site the best fantasy baseball website in the business.
3: Baseball HQ Radio.
0: And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our Baseball HQ commentaries. We're starting a little bit slow. We'll have the minor league minute and my extra innings starting next week. But right now it's time for the frequent flyer, where we look at a player who might be available on your league's free agent list and who has the skills to contribute to the success of your teams. And here with a look at Oakland first baseman Ryan Noda is Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky.
3: Welcome aboard! Before we introduce our 2023 frequent flyers, we'd like to point out that some of our frequent flyers from 2022 have probably already figured heavily into your 2023 drafts. For example, you might remember that we identified Corbin Carroll as a player to watch on May 20th, 2022. 2022 frequent flyers Jordan Walker, Miguel Vargas, Alex Lang, Jose Siri, Spencer Steer, Matt Mervis, and Nolan Gorman were probably also gaining helium in your drafts this year, especially Jordan Walker. We missed a few, too, such as Brewers pitcher Ethan Small and Arizona first-base prospect Leandro Cedeno, who's now playing in Japan. Plus, we're still anxiously awaiting the impact of 2022 frequent flyers Jackson Churio, Michael Bush, Bobby Miller, Asturieri Ruiz, and Matt Walder, among others. Now we're ready for takeoff in 2023, so fasten your seat belts, adjust your tray tables, and have your seats locked in the upright position as we prepare for takeoff for the 2023 season. Here we go! He's an athletic, lefty-swinging slugger with remarkable patience and a discerning eye that evokes memories of a young Kevin Uclus, according to Baseball HQ's Brad Coleman in 2018. Yes, 2018! lot's happened in five years. Fast forward to the April 6, 2023 edition of Playing Time Tomorrow on BaseballHQ.com, and her own Jack Thompson depicted Oakland Athletics' now 27-year-old first baseman, Ryan Noda, as a fine defender with some power and the ability to work a walk, plus base running skills. Note that's in addition to base running skills, not necessarily plus-plus base running skills. You know what we mean. However... According to Jock, Noda's glaring weakness has always been making contact, as seen in a 28% strikeout percentage over 574 plate appearances at AAA last season. That's why 27-year-old Oakland first baseman Ryan Noda, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered to be a long shot, who may be worth a flyer if he is still available in your league. Even so, expectations are high for Noda in Oakland. A's beat writer for the Mercury News, Cole Bradley, on March 3, 2023, opined that amid a slew of offseason additions who have joined the Oakland A's, Ryan Noda has a chance to be one of the team's most impactful newcomers. Certainly, a left-handed power bat blasting 54 home runs over the past two seasons is impactful. Plus, the Athletics' Melissa Lockard reported on December 8, 2022, that after the Rule 5 draft, Oakland Athletics GM David Forrest said his team asked the Dodgers about Noda in trade discussions several times in recent years and were happy to get him in this draft. I like the power, I like the walks, and I like the defense at first base, Forrest added. Definitely a great combination. Nevertheless, Noda was blocked at first base by Freddie Freeman at L.A., Remember, Freeman led all Major League First basemen in steals in 2022 with 13, followed by A's First baseman Seth Brown with 11. Brown also clubbed 25 home runs but batted 230 in 2022. Likewise, Nota matched Brown's 25 home run output at AAA in 2022 with a 259 batting average. More importantly, Noda stole 20 bases in 2022. Did you catch that? Ryan Nota as a first baseman, stole 20 bases at AAA in 2022. Over the past five seasons, only two first basemen, Ian Desmond, in 2018 and Danny Santana in 2019, have posted 20 or more steals in a single season. Also worth noting, only seven first basemen have even reached double digits in steals since 2018, five years ago. That's why 27-year-old Oakland Athletics first baseman Ryan Noda might be a steal in 2023 as our frequent flyer for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky of BaseballHQ.com.
0: Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky has his frequent flyer comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Friday, April 7th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number eleven of the twenty twenty three fantasy baseball season. I also want to thank our guest expert for this Friday full edition, Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Joe is an active and creative baseball thinker and a consistently excellent guest here on the podcast. You should check out the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and follow Joe at Joe underscore Sheehan on Twitter. I also want to thank our Market Watch news analyst Ray Murphy. And our frequent flyer commentator was Baseball HQ analyst Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I sure hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. Also, remember you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook and on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ. You can also follow my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. Please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to Apple Podcasts, Google Pods, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you catch your pods, and leave Baseball HQ Radio a good review and a rating. It really does help us find new listeners, and that helps us keep the podcast going. Oh, if your podcaster of choice doesn't get Baseball HQ Radio, let us know about that or anything else on your mind by emailing us at bhqradio at gmail.com. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again next Friday with another Friday Full Edition featuring Glenn Colton from the Colton and the Wolfman show on Sirius XM. And in the weeks ahead, listen to this lineup of top-notch guest experts. We're going to have Ariel Cohen from the ATC Player Projection and Valuation Systems, Tim McLeod from Prospects 360, and our go-to guy for Japanese and Korean baseball. We'll have Derek Carty, another projections guy from the BAT and the BATX Projection Systems, And we'll have Paul Sporer from Fangraphs and the Sleeper and the Bust podcast. Plus, we'll have all the usual great stuff, news analysis, our Baseball HQ commentaries every week, and Glenn Colton on our next Friday's full edition of the podcast with fantasy baseball intelligence for winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk with you again next Friday. And for now, so long.